0: podcast world what's up chat Belling back at you with another episode of this life ain't for everybody again thank you so much for the continued support and thank you for supporting the partners and sponsors that support our tv shows and our podcasts here at tfl productions the foul life tv the foul life podcast and of course this life ain't for everybody we've been getting a lot of inquiries a lot of reviews a lot of ratings talking about the guests that we've had lately from george brett to chad ward to leith lofton to dan hendo henderson and we have a lot of really strong episodes and content coming your way very soon right here at this life ain't for everybody so if you could keep telling people subscribe Leave us a rating, leave us a review. It helps us get placement, and we truly appreciate that. Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody is brought to you by our friends at High Viz Sites. For all of your shooting needs, whether it's handguns, shotguns, or rifles, check out the entire line of light pipe technology by high shooting systems they're out of laramie wyoming they're an american-made company and they are an awesome group of people that care about the culture of the hunter the conservationist the shooter so check them out high-vis they've supported us since 2001 we couldn't be more humbled or happier with the partnership highvis sites.com you can't go wrong illuminate the sky when you put that gun up and pick out your target and switch from one target to the next thank you guys very much for taking care of high-vis we're on to today's episode where We are going to continue our theme of air travel, um, aircrafts, being a pilot, a fighter pilot. Today's is a little bit different. I have a female sitting here, which kind of sounds weird or I don't, I'm not trying to make it sound sexist, but when you think fighter pilots, you think like the Top Gun movie, you don't think that females would actually be the one in the cockpit fighting and that couldn't be further from the truth. I actually think in Top Gun, wasn't the main instructor a female was she a, was she a, a she might've been like a former fighter pilot. I don't remember. I know they're making part two of that. And I was told by this female, this young lady, Rachel Moore, her husband was on the podcast lately, Mr. Brian Moore. They are both, uh, do you call them, how do you, former fighter pilots that have moved on to commercial jobs? Sure, former R- fighter pilot. Rachel Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you, happy to be
0: here. You look good today. You look happy, you look jovial, you look like your kids are keeping you on your toes.
1: Absolutely, all the time. Right? How,
0: how, do you, uh, how do you keep up with it all? Are, you just got back from Texas as, and you still have an obligation to the military. After you retire, are you retired from the military or how does that work?
1: I am still currently serving in the Air Force Reserves. I have 20 years this December. And I am going to transition to another job hopefully here in Reno so I don't have to travel to Texas
0: every month. So you have an obligation every month to fulfill a certain amount of days with the reserve. And what does that entail? Are you allowed to talk about that? Are you training pilots? Are you helping? What are you doing on that job?
1: I am a, a T-6 instructor pilot. It's the primary trainer at the NATO pilot training base down in, in Texas at Shepherd Air Force Base. So.
0: Is, is T-6 the level?
1: It is the aircraft, That's, T-6 Texan II.
0: What kind of aircraft is that?
1: It's a turboprop tandem seating for two pilots. It can be flown solo. It was a joint effort between the Air Force and the Navy, so the Navy flies it as a trainer as well.
0: So when you are training, you're in, the, you're in the, the seat on the right, looking out of the cockpit window with a, uh, a, the person you're training is taking, they're doing the entire flight and you're just watching them kind of like getting your driver's license. You're, you're watching the moves they make or the buttons they push.
1: Well, first of all, we sit behind each other. So one's in front, one's in back. And it depends on the type of mission we're doing. Typically, the student is gonna be in the front, the instructor pilot's in the back if they're a brand new student. A typical mission, we're flying a lot, trying to demonstrate to them. If it's one of their last missions, we're, we are just watching what they're doing, and hopefully, they're doing well, and they're going to move on to their check ride.
0: So, I don't know if it's okay to discuss or talk about what a mission could be in training, but what kind of mission would a training uh, a session consist of? What are you doing when you're on a mission as a trainee?
1: It's broken up into four broad categories: contact, instruments low level and formation. So they're gonna start out in what's called contact and that's just the basic maneuvers of flying. Takeoffs, landings, flying straight and level, trying to maintain level flight in a turn. We'll move on to aerobatics and it's really just to build confidence in the aircraft but it really is heavily focused on being able to safely land the aircraft. Either with, in a normal configuration which for us is um, 60% flaps, or in a no flap configuration, from a straight in, from an overhead pattern. So if we're, you know, doing a circular 360 over the runway, or they're just doing like an airliner kind of landing. So that's the primary focus, and we're just building that basic VFR. So there's no clouds. We're not in the weather flying. Pilot skills with the other primary basic building block being the instruments. So. If you're in the clouds, how are you going to get from point A to point B without, you know, going inverted, flying on your instruments and being able to handle the aircraft without seeing outside?
0: And would you say risk being inverted? What does that mean?
1: You don't really want to be upside down in an airplane when you're in the clouds because you don't have a point of reference. Your instruments are going to be, you know, spinning because you're trying to catch up with what the airplane's doing. So it's not recommended to be that way if... People are inverted at in an airplane and the clouds are typically spatially disoriented. They're messed up in the head.
0: So is it, is it, you consistently get inverted on other missions that where there's no clouds in, in play?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, to me, that is one of the big takeaways I'm now learning, you know, contrasting military flying with civilian or commercial flying is how, how dynamic the flying is on a regular basis. So, as I said, just for the contact phase, we will teach aerobatics where you're doing what you would see at an air show. Loops, aileron rolls, immelmans all those maneuvers that they will demonstrate at an air show. We're teaching the students to do that because it teaches cross-check. It teaches, you know, building that situational awareness of being upside down on an airplane with the forces on your body and being able to put the airplane where you want it to be in a piece of sky kind of thing.
0: So when you talk about being upside down in an airplane, are you talking about when you move into a fighter jet? Like I've seen those kind of jets upside down, but in this prop, this turboprop plane, is there missions to where you have to get inverted? Yes. Give me an example of where where you would get inverted in a a turboprop plane.
1: So moving on to the formation flying. So that's two aircraft where you maneuver in relation to each other and you maneuver as a team, if you will. We will advance to a, an exercise, which is sort of the building blocks for dogfighting. So you're very commonly upside down, trying to maintain an aspect behind that aircraft that is prescribed in the training syllabus, really. So they are doing inverted maneuvers, um, level maneuvers really the person who's leading the exercise can kind of do whatever they want. And the person behind them is just following them in their, in their aircraft.
0: Really? So you're, when you're talking about missions on this type of a plane, is this type of plane used in everyday military activity overseas in theater right now? This, no. Okay. So what plane would they move on to with the training being in this, this T six you're talking about?
1: So my base specifically, the program in specifically is, a NATO program. So we have not only US students, but German students, Italian students, Norwegian students, you know, everyone in NATO, including those instructors. So they can move on to any of those aircraft, a Eurofighter, an F-16, an F-35, or even transportation aircraft if that's what their country decides they're going to go fly. So we really can go on to anything, honestly.
0: So there. this this is just basic. This is just the basics.
1: Absolutely. Yes. These students do not have their wings. When they're done with this program, when they're done with the T6 where I teach, they will move on to a T38, which looks very much like the F5, which Brian flies for the Navy, which is the bogeys in top gun. When they finish that program, they will graduate and they'll have their wings. And now they're a pilot, a military pilot.
0: And that's what you did. Yes. So when you're a little girl, like I, I, I kind of grew up with your brother, starting in middle school, we started to form a friendship and then it it kind of matured into high school and then college and then into our late, you know, into our thirties and forties. You were, you were younger than us. When did this happen? When did this light bulb go off in your head that you were going to pursue this type of career? Was there a certain thing that you remember to where you're like, I'm going to be a pilot. Did you always want to be a pilot? Um, How did it? when did that happen?
1: It for sure started, this sounds cheesy, but for my generation, a lot of us will say it started when we watched Top Gun. That was kind of the first flicker of, that would be a pretty cool job to do in the future. Then I very specifically remember being in middle school and having a very good friend's mom tell me when I mentioned, oh, I think it'd be cool to be a fighter pilot. She like immediately shot it down saying, oh, you don't want to do that. That's for boys, or you don't want to be in a boys club or something like that. And it sort of took me aback, like a few, you know? Yeah. Um, I think what really actually then started for sure pushing me down that path was my eighth grade math teacher told our class as we were finishing up eighth grade and moving on to high school that we really needed to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives because we had to focus our high school studies, which looking back on it was kind of incorrect because high school is very general. Very. But I respected her and I loved her and I, she kind of scared me a little bit. So I went home and thought about it. I didn't want to wear a skirt. I didn't want to work at a desk and I wanted to travel. So I'm like, all right, I'll just be a pilot. And the more I looked into it, the more it was very apparent to me like that would be a good career for me.
0: So you knew going into your freshman year of high school, you're 15 years old, that this is going to be your course for the next four years of high school for, you know, then college, flight school, training, all of that. You knew that going into freshman year, you were going to pursue this.
1: I knew going into high school, I wanted to look at pursuing it.
0: Look at pursuing it. Was but there I
1: couldn't, a... I'd, ne- I'd never seen anything else or done anything else that was that interesting to me. And, but I also had never flown an airplane by myself at that
0: point. Had you flown in an airplane a bunch yes. when you were a kid? Did you travel a lot? Not a lot, but but enough to some. know. Were you ever scared? No, never scared of air travel. Should we, as a general public, be scared of air travel? No, no, not at all. And that's what I want to kind of get into is, you, what per, what percentage? If you, and I don't even know if you have a number or you can even guess. What percentage of commercial pilots for American airline companies, not just American airlines, but America-based airline companies, Southwest, United, Delta, American, what percentage of those pilots, captains and co, co First cap, officers. First officers and captains. What percentage are ex-military, if you had to guess?
1: Some airlines are around 40%, others are more. 20 to 30 because my reserve squadron is in a very indistinct kind of group of people. We actually kind of have most of the airlines covered because all these reserve pilots work for an airline as a side job, as their main job, really. And it seems that Delta seems to have the highest percentage of-
0: Delta does currently. Would you trust the military pilot more than you would somebody that didn't fly in the military personally? Would you, or should we trust military pilots more than the ones that aren't ex-military or do they go through the same exact training to be able to be in that seat?
1: Nope. It's not the same exact training, but they have certainly proven themselves worthy to be in that seat. So I wouldn't say that you would trust one more than the other.
0: Is it boring for a person like you to fly a passenger jet or a passenger carriage. jet. I don't know how, I don't, what, what flight, what plane are you on right now? What are you flying?
1: The Airbus 320 and 319.
0: What is that compared to like a 737? Exactly. Same thing exactly. as a 737, just a different company.
1: For, yes. For the general public, it's the Airbus equivalent of a 737.
0: So is the air, is a 737 a Boeing? Yes. And then the Airbus is the manufacturer, the builder of this air. That's the company name is Airbus. Yes. Is it boring when you're talking about inverted and aerobatics and being in these in these fighter jets and what you did at one time? When you get on there, is it like just driving a big truck that's just like with a you know like a school bus to where you're just like oh gosh? But I know that you take it serious and I know that you love it. You have a huge passion for the art of flight, but does it kind of get tedious to where it's just like up? down or are you like but does, does it stay interesting all the time with making sure that you're watching the weather and watching the clouds and watching the instruments and all that
1: i definitely get bored flying the big airplanes i and i definitely will constantly be looking at things just to keep myself entertained as best i can but i am having a very hard time coming to terms with you know the end of my military flying being very close my finney fly right now is scheduled in january and never again will i fly 10 feet from another aircraft or fly inverted at least in the near future it's not
0: does that make you sad makes me very sad like to cry sad like that like deep emotional like you, you have you hold it that close to your heart
1: it's just what i've done my whole life i'm good at it i like instructing those techniques i enjoy the people I work with, which, you know, for sure would, you know, definitely trust a civilian, um, a person who came through the civilian ranks to be a pilot in the airlines, you know, same as I would trust a military pilot, but I certainly don't have as much in common with them, I don't think. I have a difficult time holding conversations with them for five hours more than I would so a military pilot. Really? It's just a different connection, I think. Common background
0: do you intimidate them when when they know that you're a female that's in her 30s that did what you did in the military and flew the jets that you flew and did the missions that you completed? Do you think there's a sense of intimidation or do they even know your credentials when they get in that cockpit with you?
1: It depends. If they don't ask, I don't tell them. We just fly the plane where we need to fly it to. And I don't think they're intimidated. I mean, they're most of the time men in their 60s. They're getting ready to retire. It's just two different worlds.
0: What seat are you in on these plane on this Airbus?
1: I'm a first officer. So if you're a passenger and you look into the cockpit, it's the one on the right.
0: And so do you have aspirations or will you become a captain? So you're sitting on the seat at the left, on the left?
1: Someday. However, your quality of life in an airline is dictated by seniority and my seniority is at a level right now in the right seat of the Airbus that I can control my schedule how I want to control it. So I can, big Christmas off, I can, you know, get get all the time off that I want to be with my kids and my family. So for do, now I'm
0: happy. Who do you fly with? Is it Delta? United. United. Brian's Delta or Brian's American? He's American. He's American and you're United. hmm So when you're the when you're the first cat when you're the first officer on the right what do you do during a flight when the when the captain comes on or is it you that comes on at the beginning when you are either you know when you're telling the flight attendants to take their seat and you're getting ready for takeoff is that you or is that the captain
1: it's airline dependent how they set things up but typically with every airline when the passengers are boarding there'll be a welcome from the captain announcement that the captain will always make that and the way United runs it, it's always the first officer that's telling the flight attendants to be seated for departure. But once we're airborne, who's talking to you is the person who's not flying the airplane and we'll trade off legs. So if I'm flying from San Francisco to Nashville, once we're airborne, then the cap- captain's making the radio calls and talking to the people in the back.
0: Cause you're doing the takeoff and flying the first leg. And what does a leg consist of miles or hours or what?
1: Um, Takeoff, flying, landing, is a leg.
0: Is a leg. So you're flying the plane the entire way from San Francisco to Nashville.
1: Well, the autopilot's flying most of the time.
0: Oh, I wanted to talk makes about it that too. even more
1: boring. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't like flying commercially. I don't think you do much. We don't do much. Do you ever feel like just taking control, like getting inverted and just making sure that they understand that you're in charge?
1: No way. (laughs) I I would not want to be a passenger in the back of an airplane that goes inverted, but you can, you can for sure take the autopilot off, but even then there's restrictions on when you have to leave it on. If there's weather, um, for a certain amount of time after takeoff, you know, you know, depending on the situations, it's, it's, there's a lot of autopilot involved.
0: And when, when does the autopilot come on? I assume that it's not on on takeoff. You're doing the takeoff, right?
1: Correct, and we turn it on.
0: You turn it on.
1: And it's totally at the pilot's discretion.
0: Okay, so when, you're, when, you're, when you are on the runway and you're taking off and your wheels up, you're in the air and you're climbing, And you're getting to 10,000 feet to where that light, you know, it goes off and you're allowed to use your laptop or whatever is there any like is,
1: you've done this before
0: a lot I fly a lot is there a lot of is there autopilot in that time there in that first 10,000 feet above sea level which is tricky because not tricky but if you're in Denver you only have to get 6,000 feet in the air to that light to go off to where if you're at sea level you have to climb to a full 10,000 feet which takes longer obviously so that's when people hear that light go off they're all you're always at 10,000 feet above sea level. It just depends on how what the altitude of the airport and runway you took off from is and how long it takes to get there.
1: Which we call AGL.
0: So AGL is above ground level.
1: Which is exactly what you're talking about. In Denver, 10,000 MSL is not
0: 10,000 AGL. It, it's not 10,000. It's only 6,000 or a little under 6,000.
1: Yeah, depending on obviously where you are over the ground. It's
0: varying. Speaking of Denver, you it, is it... A hard airport to fly into and out of especially if you're flying out to the west or coming from the west and you got to coming over the Rocky Mountain seems like it's 100% of the time you're gonna get pretty strong turbulence and you're gonna have the captain or the first officer come on and say hey we're gonna sit everybody down early um, we expect some pretty good turbulence or bumps going into the valley once they clear the mountains, they're still, you know, it's just like coming in Reno a lot, even though it's a lot wider valley, and Denver's not 360 degrees, you're surrounded by mountains like we are, but it seems like you still get some pretty good wind, current, or whatever that is, those, the drafts that will knock you around a little bit. Is it, did you guys rate the airports? I've heard before that like pilots will get on and rate takeoff or approach or landing airports, and there's some that are worse than others. Is this true?
1: If it's true, I do not know about the rating system
0: do you have a personal rating of any of them that you would be like man i just it's just terror they're just all real second nature like riding a bike for you
1: no by far and it's very well known to pilots that chicago o'hare is very challenging not necessarily the flying into it or taking off from there but once you get on the ground they do not have any patience for you misunderstanding radio call they don't have any patience for you not responding to a radio call or sometimes they don't want you to respond it it's just very busy and there's multiple agencies that you talk to on the ground there it's it's a zoo you got to be on your game
0: but none come to mind like i don't like it like you like to fly into phoenix when it's 120 out with the all of those heat waves and i've had some really bad experiences in into there in tucson before i've had vegas has been tough before i'm just saying the airports that i've had reno can be tough coming in and out of reno's you get knocked around i assume that's because of those wind shears coming off the tops of the mountains how much Is there a lot of training that goes into every experience that a pilot could potentially encounter when he or she is in the cockpit?
1: In the military, yes. I couldn't speak to the civilian training side. For instance, I wish I could give you the number, but just going through pilot training, you go through probably 30 emergency procedures simulators where they absolutely can throw the book at you and you're on fire, your gear didn't come down, all of the above. And it's a simulator, so it, you, know, you can do that over and over again. You can pause it and talk about, well, what are you doing here? What should you be doing here? What can you do better? Rewind the tapes, try it again. And that training, and even after you graduate, now you're in a squadron in, a, in a, either a training unit or not. Every six months, I think, you're doing an emergency procedure simulator. So when I was a Lieutenant, my first assignment was as an instructor pilot in Texas. I was in a T-38, which is a multi, two engine aircraft. And it has skinny wings. So, you know, between takeoff to when you're actually to fly flying airspeed, it's very difficult, sometimes impossible to fly if you lose an engine in that critical phase of flight. So we trained to it constantly in the simulator. And sure enough, one day I took a bird down my left engine left engine shut itself down, and now I have one engine, and it was just rote memorization. I just went through the steps because I'd done it a million times in the simulator. So I don't know how that translates into the civilian training because I haven't done it, but for sure in the military, we're just-
0: So you were on a mission as a lieutenant and- and A a, training mission. Oh, training mission. And a bird actually went down into your engine, stopped the engine. Yes. You're single engine now. And you just think back to your training and all of these 30 exercises, emergency exercises and that you had to, you know, you're getting the book thrown at you. You have to perform or you're going to get the book thrown at you and probably, you know, not pass, graduate. And is it 100% if you follow them? You can, is what I would think that engine failure, a mechanical diff, something mechanically would be the number one cause of anything to go wrong in flight. You always obviously don't want that, but I I would assume the odds of that happening are very low with the maintenance on these aircrafts. Is it safe to say that that's really the only way a plane can go? You know, getting into big trouble, or can turbulence and bad weather, and is it the mistake of the pilot of going into something that he or she shouldn't have went into, not reading the instruments right, not being able to forecast what they're seeing? I've heard that pilots can see potholes in the sky, which you know I don't know if that's true, but I've read that, I've seen that said. I think it's a marketing campaign for one of the major airlines, as a matter of fact. Like what what else can go wrong up there besides what you're talking about? with that mechanical or that engine failure?
1: Well, there is for sure a big emphasis in aviation on human factors because those are the people controlling the airplanes, both flying the airplanes and as an air traffic controller, either in a tower or in an air traffic control center. So if somebody, well, as we saw with German wings is feeling suicidal that can cause a big problem with an airplane. Yeah. I would say in general, maybe just mechanical aren't the big threats to an aircraft. Um, in fact, an aircraft can go through pretty severe turbulence and come out of it just fine. It's really the people inside the objects being thrown around that cause the injuries. Um, obviously weather, you know, if you talk about potholes in the sky, every airline has a um, weather radar, and I think that's probably what you're referring to because depending on what um, sensitivity you have the radar set to or what range you have it set to, there could be black holes in what it's giving, what readings it's giving you back, and maybe I think that's what they're talking about, potholes in the sky, as far as where you're gonna, you know, you obviously wanna avoid that and you can see you know, the path you wanna take with the aircraft. You're simultaneously now talking to ATC. They have weather radar. You're communicating with your dispatch person on what they're seeing on their flight planning software, weather, all the above, as far as, you know, what's the safest route for this aircraft to take.
0: What causes turbulence? When you get up above the clouds, shouldn't turbulence turn off? When you are in the clouds, I get it. Bumpy, that's, you know, it's hitting the, hit, what causes turbulence i mean i i'm 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 aware in a way, but I, I'm not playing the devil's advocate i don't know everything about it, but it seems like if you're at thirty five thirty six thousand feet that you should never encounter turbulence. How does turbulence get way up there if the storm or the clouds that you're flying over are way down there is, is is there still a really good chance of the odds still high of turbulence being up that high or is it very uncommon for it to get really bad up there i understand the occasional bump here and there and a few shakes but what would cause turbulence way up there do you train for that do you train did you get that in your training in military of what actually causes it up there
1: we had a very basic weather course it's just disturbances in the atmosphere just because you can't see it it's still air moving um you know, depending on where the jet stream is interacting, you know, with the layers above it and below it, and that is a huge part of planning and also flying a commercial airline flight, avoiding turbulence. It goes into the the planning well before you ever take off. What altitude are you gonna fly at? Where is it forecast? Our flight plan will always tell us, you know, between this point and this point, there's forecast moderate turbulence, or light turbulence, or there's been pilot reported incidents of turbulence, and the planes will actually talk to each other as well if it encounters a turbulence incident so that they can correlate all those data points and you know maybe alter their course if they need to. And it's automatically information spit out through the aircraft systems, which is was interesting to me because the military aircraft do not do that.
0: So that's just the evolving of the air of air travel and how strong the how i mean it's very high technology the highest of technology in these planes to where if uh you take off and you're flying to nashville and then another plane leaves two hours later an hour later from san francisco and flies to nashville that pilot's reading rachel moore's um you know, something that came through, hey, when we got over New Mexico or wherever, we encountered this, you might want to steer clear, you might want to drop down to this altitude, you might want to climb to this. You're giving them hints, or you're, or does air traffic control take it from there after you report the incident?
1: It's constant. The tur- Turbulence by far is the one thing I would say we are most interested in as we are progressing through a normal flight, unless there's, you know, a passenger in the back who has a medical incident or whatever, Turbulence is our our big factor, so every time we're checking in on a frequency, how are the rides? Is a very common radio call you'll hear tacked on to somebody checking in, like, hey, ATC, are we going to experience turbulence at this altitude on our route of flight? Um, when When you're experiencing turbulence, now you're checking in with ATC, hey, do you have any altitudes that are a smoother ride? Have you experienced severe turbulence or not severe, moderate turbulence. Now, how's everybody doing in the back? It's sort of just this constant battle that we're always fighting to find the smoothest ride.
0: But a plane can take a lot of turbulence. I mean, I've seen those videos of the wing tests and how far those wings can bend and and, and what they go through. Is turbulence a fear of pilots or it's just a concern because they want the number that the importance is the comfort of that passenger and you'd never want to put the passenger in harm's way or be, you know, have an uncomfortable feeling in their mind. So that's why you're so focused on it throughout the entire course of that travel.
1: Yes, but even more so would be concern for the flight attendant safety because they're just by nature of them being up and about, especially there's unexpected turbulence, they get injured. And sometimes they can get injured pretty severely with, you know, drink carts flying around or customers, you know, laptop, customers strapped in, but we hit a bump and the laptop goes flying. We're more, more concerned, I would say, about the flight attendant safety.
0: More concerned about the Because flight. if you're in your seats, you should have your seatbelts fastened. Around. Always. So what do I have to be scared of? Andy Perwin, mutual friend of ours, your brother and I, years too. I think he was in his 40s. I was talking to your husband about that before he took his first flight ever because of fright. Like you can ask Andy about this when you see him, but I I think I'm right on this. And I'm not throwing Andy on the bus because he doesn't care. He talks about it all the time. Okay. What do we have to be scared of? Why are people afraid to fly when... You're like, there's so much open space up there. There's not nearly the amount of aircrafts in the sky at any given time as there is on the highways of America or any other country. Um, Train travel, boat vessel travel, automobile travel, aircraft, air travel is air travel is the safest out of all of them right i mean statistically i don't even know about boats and vessels and what yeah, can do i, get, don't, know I don't know the numbers either but it just seems compared to just being in a car the chances or the odds of you just getting in a fender bender or in, a more severe accident are way higher then how do we how do we tell people or what, what is the number one reason why people should get scared of flying is it the fear of the unknown because you have no control when you get in that airbus and you get in that seat whether it's a middle an aisle or a window and you're sitting there and you like you don't have any idea what's going on you know because of security since 9 11 you know the 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 you, you can't really that you used to have a more I guess a little bit more interaction with the pilots there would be a little bit more back in the data where that door gets closed a lot faster now and there's nobody that can get up there at all which is awesome but it, it is it safe to say that you should never be afraid to fly because of people like you and the training and on top of that the way that these things are built and the, the safety precautions and measurements that are taken, you know, with, with what you're saying that you guys are focusing on this turbulence. You guys are thinking about this all the time. In one sentence, you're saying that in the other one, you're saying that you can't quit yawning because you're so bored on one of these air buses. <laughs> so you're, we can cut that if you want. I'm just kidding. But I'm saying that you're focused. What, why should anybody be afraid to fly?
1: Well, you tell me, cause I'm not afraid to fly,
0: but why are they? I just, even me, I fly a lot, like not more than Other people, I mean, more than most, but not. There's other, my point is that there's other people out there that fly away more than I do, obviously. Right. But I still get a little bit like, a little bit like man i just let's just let this go smooth i, I want i want some clean settled air i've flown privately where you know I, you, I i sit in the cockpit and i talk to the pilots and i'm on the headphones and i hear I, you know i have a duck call company called jargon and one of the coolest jargons ever is what you guys talk to with atc air traffic control and what the pilots and the and the captains and the first officers are saying I have no idea what you're saying, but it's amazing to hear what's going on and what's transpiring between the two. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're talking about the approach, like when to come through the clouds, where, what, what height to be at, you know? And I'm, 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 I'm just always asking these questions and trying to be a sponge on information. And my favorite thing is when I get on a plane and there's an empty seat next to a pilot that's getting on that plane to go to another airport to take another flight, I, which happens sometimes. I love sitting there and they don't that like when I sit. poor Yes, that poor He's bastard. next
1: to you. Yes,
0: because I'm just like, I remember. <laughs> What was, <laughs> what was that he's like just want to take a nap yeah he's like oh dude I got to fly to Argentina tonight you want to shut the hell up but I, I don't know I just I'm so interested and intrigued by it because one I want to be a pilot always wanted to be two never did it but I meet the pilots and I'm so envious of what they're able to do when somebody like you that's as humble as you and as humble as your husband Brian it's almost like Eh, it's just a job you know it's just what what we do and i'm like no it's not it's not just a job there's a lot of responsibility with this both of your careers there was a ton of responsibility serving our country and flying those machines that are a huge investment on the u.s government knowing your mission not putting yourself or any of your soldiers in harm's way conducting the mission fulfilling the mission completing the mission and then you come on and you take a job to where you have 150 passengers or however many the airbus holds and you're flying them 12 100 miles at 30,000 feet and you want to keep them safe. It's a lot of responsibility, way more than going out and calling a duck. You know, there's a lot of responsibility. Don't laugh at what I do, Rachel. But what 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 could you tell somebody like me of like is it just a job or is it like is it the the best job? Is it is it something is it mean something to be a pilot in America and take the route that you took? What does it make you feel like knowing what you've accomplished over the last 20 years? As a female too, that's not very common. I don't know how common it is. There, is. I've seen some female pilots. I don't know if I've ever met a female fighter pilot. I know with, through our friendship that you've talked about and that there are, they are out there. You're the only one I know. It's a badass story. I think it's awesome. So you knew this going into high school that you were gonna be a pilot. Did you know that you were gonna be a military pilot and go fly jets the way that you did? Or was it like, well, maybe I'll just go work for Southwest and become a civilian. When did that come into play, that you were gonna go that military route?
1: When my parents confirmed they had not saved any money for college and the Air Force was given out scholarships.
0: That was a confirmation from your mom and dad?
1: Pretty much, yeah. And I had been very interested in military aviation. We gone to the Fallon Air Show multiple times, I was in awe of it and slightly fearful. And then when I found out how much it cost to do the civilian training, and oh, by the way, the Air Force will pay for my college and they'll pay for my flight training. It was just the way to go. It was the only option for me, unless I was going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans, I guess.
0: So... So where does that take you? Where did you go? When you graduated high school and you knew that you didn't have any money for college, where did you, what, where did it take you? You had to go and sign up for the Air Force.
1: Right. So I ended up receiving a four-year Air Force ROTC scholarship in electrical engineering. They told me I had to major in electrical engineering. Thankfully, I was okay at math. And I was very interested in the school in Arizona called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. It's in Prescott, Arizona. So they accepted me. The Air Force said, sounds good, go there. Graduated in four and a half years. I think my senior year of college, I found out I got a flight slot with the Air Force. I went overseas to Germany for one year while I waited for pilot training um, because they were kind of backed up. They're always backed up. You can't just go straight from college to pilot training. Um, went back to Texas, Del Rio, Texas, by the sea, and graduated pilot training in, oh my gosh, March of 2002. And then I stayed there as an instructor for the next three years following that.
0: So that's the path you take. You stay as an instructor. Did you ever go overseas and, and or were you, did you stay in the instructor role?
1: No, after that assignment, I then finally got an F-16, went through training at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona, where Brian went as well, but I didn't meet him there.
0: No, you met him in Hong Kong. No, Tokyo. <laughs> Somewhere overseas, right?
1: Korea. Korea.
0: Yes. <laughs> Somewhere over there.
1: Somewhere over there. Uh, so we were stationed in Korea together, that's where I met him. We both had a tour then following that in Germany for three years, and then we went to um Shepherd in Texas Shepard Air Force base where we were active duty and then I transitioned to the reserves while So you
0: you flew and you were a captain in an F16 fighter jet
1: So we don't we don't associate civilian um,
0: names okay Yeah, Titles. seat
1: assignments to yeah it's a single seat fighter so I was the rank of captain and then I was a major and then I was a lieutenant colonel but
0: so you made it to lieutenant colonel as an F16 fighter pilot
1: Yes, I mean that. The rank came after I was out of the F-16, though. Is that
0: definitely. the highlight of your careers, flying that jet? It's got to be. Absolutely. I mean, everybody, anybody that's alive would give their right arm to fly in one of those which I've tried through you, I've tried through other people, I've tried through Brian. i have tried
1: so many ways. And it's
0: like, they will not let you go Damn up it. in them. And I'm like, gosh dang it, I would do anything just to, for a five minute ride, which would be like a thousand miles.
1: For, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: It's just, it's so unbelievable to hear them, to watch them, to see what they do and to know what, you know, what it takes to get to that level. And you did it, is there any idea do you have any idea how many females have achieved that is there is it it's way more common for a male to be it whether we like to say that or not it's got to be the numbers got to be so lopsided it's it's way unbalanced right there haven't been many females that have made lieutenant colonel to be an F16 and an F16 fighter pilot right or have there been a lot
1: so i was i knew this was going to come up i was looking at numbers so oh, the air force nice. personnel center as of 30 September 2019, says that there are 788 female pilots in the Air Force, and that's out of 12,323 pilots. And this is just active duty, it's not reserves, which I am. So rough math, 6% of Air Force pilots are female, and less than 1% are fighter pilots who are female.
0: Wait, you didn't go into that. Is there a number on there of how many fighter pilots there are? no this
1: but is less just than one
0: percent of twelve thousand pilots are female fighter pilots right so think about what, math think about what you've achieved well it's rough it's not that rough it's pretty one percent think about what you've achieved i mean isn't that unbelievable that you i know that you're humble i'm not gonna sit here and have you brag on yourself or even ask you to do so because you don't do that but to me that that's achieving something that it's almost impossible. The numbers don't add up. The numbers aren't very favorable to get to that level. It says it right there, less than 1% of the 12,000 something pilots in the air force, active duty in today's air force in America, less than 1%. That could be 0.04. Who knows what that number is?
1: Well, and I mean, to give props to the guys too, it's, it's not that much higher of a percentage of the dudes that are fighter pilots. There's just not that many.
0: but but that's what i'm saying is that that has got to be the ultimate job in the world and then to do it as a female and make lieutenant colonel and fly an f-16 solo mission there's not many girls that are doing that let alone that many guys that are doing it right it's got to be the coolest job ever invented it's got to be like the most sought out not sought after because that would mean everybody's trying to do it which they're not because it's almost impossible to become one it's not impossible I didn't, I, can say, do it. I didn't say impossible i said almost you just said that look at how low the numbers are the numbers are not very high i would like to know how many people try to be a fighter pilot and don't make it i mean i wonder how where that balance is of, of is the is the success rate to get all the way through high is there a dropout rate is there you know I, I wonder what those kind of numbers are of, of who makes it and who doesn't
1: well and it goes in waves. It depends really like anything of who you're getting, who you're getting in, how bad the air force needs pilots, how bad the air force needs fighter pilots, which, oh, by the way, right now they desperately need all of the above. So if you want to be a pilot, let's go sign up.
0: Really? Yeah. And how many years, if I signed up today, relatively speaking, the average, when do I get to fly an F-16 if I sign up today and pass my physical, if let's say that I do that too. Two years. Two years to fly an F sixteen?
1: If you already have your college degree. You have to you have to be an officer to fly a fighter. So you have to have a college degree to become an officer. So then you go through, you know, all the recruiter stuff, then you go to officer training school, then you go straight to pilot training. You know, you could theoretically be in your basic course for whatever fighter you're in in approximately two years. But that's probably being pretty aggressive.
0: So what plane were you in before your fighter, before the F sixteen? The T thirty eight. So you're in the T thirty eight, which is the, tra- the 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 plane that you train right after your training level of T six of where you're currently training. Correct. You Go to the T thirty eight. That's what you were doing missions in.
1: That's that's what I was initially an instructor in was a T thirty eight, which is it's like a little fighter jet. It just doesn't have any weapons on it.
0: To it, oh, so like, the
1: average person looking at it, looks like a fighter jet. Really? It looks like the bogeys in Top Gun.
0: That's right. So you get the you get the to the level that you're going to fly solo missions in an f-16 tell me about that is is as hard as you work thinking back to ninth grade when you said i might kick this idea around heard people say that's a boys club you don't want to do that that's for the guys um you know had people had people tell you that it's not for you, had told people, you know, you had people try to talk you out of it. And now you're walking onto that jet bridge or whatever it's called, where the jets are sitting. What's it called? Is it tarmac? Is it a tarmac? Okay, it's tarmac. Just when you walk out and you're, and you have your helmet in your hand and you're walking to your jet, that's the tarmac, I guess. Yep. So you're walking, what's going through your mind? Is it just like, do you remember the feeling? Do you remember how you felt walking up there going, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I made it. I'm about to fly an F-16 solo.
1: Yeah, that was, that was pretty fricking cool. That was a good day. The best day, and by far in my whole career, this is still one of the best days for me, was I'm still in training, in the F-16 training. And as a culmination of your air to ground phase where you're learning surface attack and how to drop bombs, shoot the gun, I think it's the last sortie we do they actually take you out and you get to drop live bombs. And because they don't really trust you to drop one at a time, they wanna just get rid of all of them. I got to drive, drop six live 500 pound bombs at one time and it was the biggest boom explosion I have ever seen in my life and I created it. It was awesome.
0: <laughs> and how long was this? This was off of an F-16? It was off
1: of an F-16. I was still at Luke, I was still in F-16 training. and I. Still to this day, I just remember just looking down, what like big fireball coming up, like,
0: yes. It still that gets you. was awesome. It still gets you. So, did you ever go into theater? Are you allowed <laughs> to talk about that? I don't know. I
1: am. It's, um,
0: Is it emotional?
1: No, no. It's emotional because I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. I did go into theater, I got to deploy with my husband. I didn't get to fly, I have zero combat hours. I was fully spun up. I'd gone to all the red flags, the green flags, ready to go. And they were starting to draw down in Iraq. So I was, my primary job was the wing flight safety officer. And I was supposed to fly in addition to that. But because they were doing the drawdown, they started limiting people who weren't just in a squadron from flying. So I basically sat at a desk and did CrossFit and shot at pigeons for four months. No way. And then my husband was up doing the missions, but that's okay. Why? It's just a numbers game. You know, I was a higher rank at that point. They had me in an attached job. Again, my primary job was to be the safety officer for the wing, and they didn't want those attached people flying because it sort of diluted the numbers and made it look to the higher-ups that we didn't need as many fighters at that base as we we knew that we we need it so it was just it was a numbers game
0: so it didn't so that's why it bugs you because you said you have zero combat hours which you want sometimes. i'm a fighter
1: pilot with zero combat hours yeah i killed pigeons on base
0: with a gun with
1: a gun with a shotgun it wasn't even good at
0: that <laughs> you're <rather laughs> so be disappointed ahead. in me <laughs> No, I'm not disappointed. We can get we can get you better at that. So how long that's four months that you're on this mission? This is in Germany?
1: We were stationed in Germany at the time, but we were that was Iraq. Balad Air Base Iraq.
0: Going to so you sat at the airbase in Iraq for four months. But you so what does based in Germany mean if you're at that base in Iraq? So, you're stationed in Germany.
1: Stationed in Germany. There you go. Okay, that's so,
0: probably the better word. So then you want uh, you go, ahead, but you're on a mission. You you would land at the base in Iraq. That's where you stayed. No,
1: we deployed. Our squadron deployed to Iraq. Planes, everything, people. You move in the people before you move out. You sit there for four months. Fly the missions. Come back to base.
0: So are you nervous as a wife and? Oh and envious at the same time of your husband and pissed off at your husband at the same time? All these emotions are going through this woman's head that you're like, I should be up there. He better get his ass home safe. And are you a nervous wreck while he's out on these missions or what are you going through?
1: No, I, was, I wasn't. I guess it was actually easier being there with him. And it was silly because as a married couple, we weren't allowed to live together. Um, but it was... It was fine I got to see him basically every night you know the war was drawing down a little bit at that point so it wasn't you know crazy missions every night that they were flying that you know a lot of it was just boring circles in the sky for five or six hours as they call it so I wasn't worried about him Maybe I should have
0: been. They were boring because they were flying over the the war zone, just keeping an eye out or waiting for something to pop up.
1: Yeah, there wasn't a lot going on at that point. Really? I did bring his. He didn't... Well, he hasn't gone to that point yet.
0: No. You can talk about whatever you want. Okay. He's going to come back in Friday, and we're going to continue our conversation.
1: Yeah, Brian's a war hero. I brought his single sortie air medal. He basically saved a school. Can I see this? It was his first first deployment down there. Can I have this? Yes, it's a copy.
0: The United States of America to all who shall see these presents greetings. Oh, to see these presents greeting. This is to certify that the President of the United States of America, authorized by Executive Order May 11th, 1942, has awarded the Air Medal Third Oak Leaf Cluster to Captain Brian L. Moore for matu- meritorious Meritor. achievement while participating in aerial flight. Under my hand. Lieutenant General Gil Gilmary yep. M. Hostage. Wow, that's not a good last name for a lieutenant. No. That's a weird last name for a military lieutenant. Gilmary M. Hostage.
1: <laughs> I guess there's worse names but
0: that happen. Wor- what? A, see, Brian never even alluded to this. So he saved a school.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess you guys haven't gotten that far in your conversation, but he's
0: yeah. I'm going to get on. I'm going to have this right here when he come. I'm going to frame that and have him sign it as a matter of fact. That is badass. It is badass. What a stud. So, is there a bigger turn on for a female to to achieve this? And then and I'm talking emotional turn on, like the way that your mind works. Are you you you've made the comment today that you're so sad that this is ending, which I'm confused about because Brian's isn't ending, is it? No, thank so God. So why, why is yours?
1: Because I have chosen to focus more on my family and stay home more and not go to Texas for six days every month to continue
0: training. So the job that you would transfer to this area of the country would not in, entail fly, flying. No, and that pisses you off.
1: It doesn't piss me off. It's you know like any anyone who retires from what they've spent their life doing. It's difficult, to say the least. Especially when the job you have is so much less cool. I guess I don't know.
0: I don't know about that though. Fun. <laughs> it's so much less fun, but you're paying attention and you're focused on all I of am these completely legs.
1: Completely paying attention you, and focus. Your yes. flight
0: logbook is not showing you drinking four Red Bulls because you stayed out and partied until three a.m. on an eight a.m. flight. Correct. You're focused. Yes. You're
1: uh, well rested. You're well rested. You know go. exactly
0: what you're doing. Have you encountered anything in your new job that you've made a mistake? Or is everything such second nature to you? Has a captain or anybody in the airline had to come to Rachel Moore and say, look, we're not driving with the way you're flying this plane. Your communication skills are with the pilot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. And that's very common for military pilots. We show up in Chicago and we're like, H, did they just say? I don't no idea what they're talking about and it's a mile a minute. And we don't hear that in the military world. We hear it in the military air battle world, but it's all as you called it, jargon that we're familiar with. And now it's, it's, it's different every airport you go to. Sometimes you get an accent, sometimes you have a bad radius, you can't really understand what they're saying. By far, that is my biggest hurdle I've had to overcome on the civilian side, and it's very common for all military fighter pilots transitioning to the airlines
0: communication
1: communications yeah
0: that's the number one so you don't you are you studying a bunch and becoming more proficient with it and more fluent with it or is it just taking it as it comes and if you hear it you do you have to look to your captain and be like what's that all about and they're telling are they teaching you as you go
1: yeah and at this point i'm i'm fine but the first year i was constantly looking at them like what did they just say and i have to say sometimes they're like i don't know ask him again because you know, people are just talking fast. They're trying to get airplanes where they want to go, and
0: well, isn't is it not been said before that the ATC is the one one of the most stressful jobs in the world, or one of the highest rates of it's gotta be highest rates of stress or suicide at one time or something? I've heard yeah. that air traffic controllers they're responsible for a lot of traffic coming into these airports and going out of these airports. How how soon or how close to, let's say you're landing in Nashville, how far out of Nashville are you when you connect to that tower and you're listening to their instructions? Like the actual tower. Are you, are you, are you, are you contacting towers the entire flight that you're flying over? No, we're, we're contacting centers. Centers.
1: Yeah. Air traffic control centers. So Los Angeles center, Albuquerque center. Oakland Center,
0: and you're contacting other pilots.
1: Typically, not. We're relaying messages if we need to about turbulence
0: to air traffic control, and then they can let everybody else know. So when you're when your destination is Nashville, are you 100 miles out? And he's like, "All right, we got this many flights coming in," and he's saying it in this jargon. I've heard some of it. But he's saying all this stuff, is it, or is it 10 miles out that you're getting your instructions?
1: It's usually when we're actually talking to the control tower at the airport. So in this case, Nashville, it's closer to 10 miles out,
0: 10 miles out,
1: back that off. You know, as you're coming into an airport general area, it's approach control. And then beyond that, it's air traffic control center.
0: Really? So as far as a danger level goes, and you're probably, both of them are probably second and fiddle to you like riding a bike again. What is more difficult for a pilot and an aircraft, the takeoff or the landing?
1: Well, on a day-to-day basis, I would say the landing, but a takeoff could go to hell in a hand basket pretty quick if something happens, you know, and you're getting ready to rotate and now you can't rotate
0: explain that what's rotate begin to lift off so rotate is from the ground to the air as soon as the wheels come off the ground
1: it's when you start to pull the nose wheel off We're, the ground is when you're starting to rotate
0: and how fast are you going in an airbus three eight, is it a 318? 319, 3, 319 or 320 319. how fast are you going ground speed when you pull that up
1: oh my god
0: 140
1: that's close enough yeah I, I got that. Like I case. got
0: that from your husband, I think. Which I was, and then it's not that much faster with a fighter fighter jet. Like a fighter jet, I thought you'd be going like three hundred like that, and then taking off. But I guess you're taking off on such a shorter. Uh,
1: you just get there so much faster. I mean, it's it's a rocket. You know, you throw it in the afterburner, and you're you're rotating, like you said, like that. An no. airline,
0: you're like. Can you describe that feeling at all? besides how badass it is that you're throwing on the afterburner and taking off that fast in a jet and doing the maneuvers that you can consistently do in an f-16 is it is it just like freedom like there's just nothing more that you've ever experienced in life that gives you that feeling i don't know anything that could like i really don't
1: yeah you're especially in an f-16 the way the canopy is built there's nothing really restricting your view it's you moving through space, if you don't really look down and see the instruments by your knees, you know, just a bubble in space.
0: So what, what is, when you're in that, I don't know what you call it, what is it called, but you, is it a cockpit in an F-16? You still call it the cockpit? Mm -hmm. Do you have any pictures of you right now, of you in one? Did you bring any by chance? No. I have one somewhere. It was a postcard or it was some kind of card that Wade got made back in the day. I should have that out. I'm going to need you to send me some. I need to see some. uh, I want some pictures if you have some flying.
1: I will send you the YouTube video, which
0: is. You have it? What is it? My
1: squadron went to Poland for a week, and I don't know why they told me, but they said, Poacher, you're going to go fly with this Polish photographer. He's going to put a camera in front of your face. And Flynn, our weapons officer, was gonna fly off my wing and he was gonna videotape the whole thing. So that's what we did and it's on YouTube if I can find it. It'll take me a minute though.
0: That's fine. I'd like to see it. So this is, you go up with a photographer that's running a video camera and he's getting video of you in the cockpit flying this F-16?
1: And he's in my back seat.
0: He's in your back seat, which is not very common.
1: No, he just had special
0: Hell clearance. How freak did he get it? Yeah,
1: exactly. I guess you have to be a- um, I can
0: take pictures.
1: <laughs> a photographer.
0: Here we go. This is gonna be unbelievable. I don't know if I'll be able to explain to the audience what we're watching here, but I'm gonna try. What is, you're in a garage? Rachel. In a
1: hanger, and you can just ignore the music because it was sort of spliced over
0: it. Rachel's in a hanger. She's getting in. She put her helmet on. This pilot, this photographer is.
1: I think his name is Adam, but I'm not sure. Dude, look how
0: badass that sticker is on your helmet. Do you have that helmet still? No. What? You don't even get to keep it?
1: It's a lot of money, that visor.
0: So now you have your air hose on and your mask on for your oxygen. You are you start. You, get, you just gave the sign to some people on the ground that you're leaving the. Oh look at this! No freaking way. What was this sign? You just give the horns. What did you just give them? Are you giving horns? That's it from
1: our Korea squadron. Push it up.
0: This is push it up, Let's mean. Push it up. And this is him in the back. Yes. That lucky bastard. I know.
1: You should have been an aerial photographer instead of a duck hunter.
0: Okay, so now you're on the runway. You're getting ready to take off right here? When
1: We're you, on the takeoff roll. When you see I'm a, about to rotate.
0: When you see a low ceiling like this and this much overcast, does it, does it scare you at all that you have to fly through that? No. Not one bit?
1: No, it was frustrating this day because it sort of restricted what we could do.
0: So you just rotated? Just rotated. How fast are you go now after you're off the ground? 200 miles an hour now? You, you just that. kicked the afterburner in?
1: I'm actually, I just came out of afterburner, I'm sure.
0: Oh my gosh, Rachel. How sick is this? I'm going to need to get this to put on the This Life Ain't For Everybody website so people can go refer to it. Is this public? This is public, right? Yeah. So do you invert here?
1: No. The guy, so you pretty soon you'll see my Weeman, who's actually my weapons there officer. There he is right
0: there. There's a plane right behind you.
1: Yeah. We just were restricted with that weather
0: from what we could do. So, Is there a lot of turbulence on a day like this? No.
1: It will, and that honestly was another big eye-opener for me going to the airlines, how much more affected they are by turbulence because there's more surface area. It makes sense, but I never thought about it
0: before. Oh, yeah, because the planes are bigger, They're so there's more huge. room to take on more air, yeah. unsettled air. Yeah. Look at this. Oh my God! You're listening to Def Leppard. You're not, but this is what he put over. That's the, what he put the, on there. Do you get to listen to music? Look at you're looking up. What's he doing above you?
1: I just felt silly just staring straight ahead when there was nothing to look at in front of me, so I thought
0: I'd look at him. What's he doing? He's just doing what you're doing. You just
1: the, that position is basically called fighting wing, which fighters really don't. Is that
0: another find. one? No, that, it's still Flint. And he's in an F-16 too. Yes. You're flying a freaking F-16. God, that is so bad. Oh, look at him. He just went inverted.
1: Oh, there you go. He went inverted. Yay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's showing off for you?
1: For the camera. I mean, that was the whole point was just to go take this video. And you
0: can do everything he's doing? Yeah. Wow. It's everything's so slowed down, but that guy in the back, that photographer, how long did it take him to get to the point to where he could go up and get the breathing down to where he didn't faint? Or did he have to go through all the training to, to make sure he was capable of doing this?
1: We never put him through the training, but I'm sure in his lifetime of doing stuff like this, he has learned how to g-strain. Yes.
0: Wow. And how fast do you get going on a little mission like this for a, for the media? Oh, you're going, you're kind of turning a pretty sharp here. Are you going subsonic?
1: We were not breaking the sound barrier. They would. The Polish air traffic controllers were very hands so you're on. Over, you're when over we were doing that.
0: You're over Poland, right here.
1: Mm-hmm. You took off from Germany. No, we took off we, at the base in Poland. That we were.
0: What a badass job! I mean, you're sitting here telling me I took off from Germany. I took off from Poland. Went over to Iraq. I mean, just and you're flying this freaking jet is so badass so when you're flying commercially and i'm looking out the window and we're over we're over new mexico out in the middle of nowhere somewhere that's just you know arizona whatever there's just not a lot of civilization down there something happens and that pilot has to make a decision like the both motors go out or both engines go out and you do you are you guys always like looking like if this happens are we gonna be able to get this plane down safely and land it somewhere, keeping the passengers out of harm's way? Is it a dirt road? Is it a, is it the salt flats of, of the Black Rock Desert? What are you looking for and are you constantly, like if something goes down, are you guys prepared? Can that plane get down there and, and make a safe landing?
1: That is part of what I do to keep myself entertained. It's not that complicated at the altitudes that we fly at. We most likely would be able to make an actual paved airstrip other than just landing on, in the dirt. So on our displays, we're constantly seeing the airports that we could theoretically make it to. So it's pretty easy. Like, oh, we just lost both motors. We're at 30,000 feet. We can make it to Tucson.
0: With, With no engines? How? Gliding. How much control do you, do you lose? Are you one hundred percent off of autopilot if this happens? Yes, absolutely. You take over the aircraft. Yes. You glide. You got enough. You don't. Nothing's running. You don't need to worry about your fuel. You don't need to, your, your engines are out. You can still maneuver that plane and, and and operate that plane the same as if those engines were running. Or is this a completely different? Was this one of these emergency exercises that we alluded to?
1: No, and that is. What makes airline travel so safe is there are backup systems to so the backup system. So if we, no kidding, lost both engines. We have a backup generator, we have a backup hydraulic system. It's really like a generator, pressure generator, but we can fly the airplane. We put the gear down, and we can land.
0: So how to plan direct, I, I hate talking about that. Like it's like a, it's like what is that called when you're not supposed to talk about something? It's like a,
1: Murphy's law. No, like, it's like a, you don't want to jinx it.
0: Yeah, but it's like a mis not a misnomer. But it's like it's one of those things that you're just not supposed to mention. It's like I can't think of the word I'm looking the for. Pa? Maybe, but. We had some accidents overseas lately in the last six, seven months. When it was when the new plane that they did not train the pilots ride on, or something happened there. That was caused by something would happen within the the controls that would make the plane take a nosedive, the jet take a nosedive. Did you did you, did you read up on any of this?
1: Yes, you know what I'm and talking I about. And I hate to pass the buck, but because my husband flies a 737, and those are 737 Maxes that you're talking about. He to is him. much more read into what the problem is and how they're trying to fix it. And he has some strong opinions as to why that would never happen to an American, especially American military trained pilot. But I'll, again, <laughs> um,
0: the pride
1: it, we just, we, we go through so much more training
0: than that's why I asked that people. question in the beginning is like, I assume that there would be way more that the percentage is 40% is pretty high. It's pretty high, actually, but I thought it would be like 70, 80% of the pilots in America were former military, because I'm like, well, what else do they do? Do they go get private pro, private jobs, or do they go to a civilian job, or you would think they would keep flying something?
1: And a lot of them do. In fact, there's, in our you know current times, there are guys that Brian has flown with out at Fallon who um, have joined a civilian company that's based out instead. Of, don't quote me, I think it's called TAC Air to simulate um, red air for the military exercises so the military's not actually spending their own money on their own airplanes to simulate red air. So they'll go do that. A guy in Texas that I'm friends with is now a CEO of a nonprofit organization so he's not flying at all. Um, Brian, squadron commander from Germany is a simulator instructor down in Florida for for the DOD, for the F-22 program. So yeah, they don't all go to the airlines, it's not. The calling. What does a
0: simulator look like before I get back to the commercial stuff? When you're going through all of these emergency things and these flight preparations and your training, you're in a simulator because I assume that they build these simulators because you're not going to go up in this expensive jet that's worth several million dollars, way more than that. Um, What is it? Is it just the inside of a cockpit with all the controls there, but it has the ability to shake and make it if the left wing fell off or the right motor goes out, right engine goes out?
1: And screens. So visually it looks like you're flying at least looking out the windscreen so they can, you know, show the runway, show the airfield, show the mountains that you don't want to run into. But other than that, if you look, if you turn around and look behind you, there's not a door to the cockpit. It's a computer and a simulator console operator.
0: But it's pretty close to the real thing as far as the feeling you get out of it or the action or the movement or whatever? Totally. Yeah. Wow. How badass is that? So that's probably more exciting than your current job sitting in the simulator?
1: Well, my current job, we do simulators. I did a whole month of training in the simulators to learn how to fly the Airbus. Really? So... It's a very useful, like invaluable tool really for training
0: on we, the we we all have cars. You drove out here in a car, you took a thirty mile drive today to do this podcast. <laughs> felt like a hundred. You didn't walk around your car and check your tire temp, your tire pressure. You didn't open the hood and make sure that everything was intact. You didn't check the steering column and, and, and all of all of your axles and everything on that checklist. You didn't do that. You just assumed, hey, it worked yesterday, it's gonna work today. Yeah. Is but that what happens? We should do that. Is that what happens in air flight? No. Every morning that there's all these jets are lined up and those pilots wake up at the holiday Inn and they come over here, they just slept their good eight hours without going out and having any alcoholic beverages because you're not allowed to have alcohol. How long before a flight? 12 hours. 12 hours. So is it limited to how many you can have at 12 hours before? It's got to be right. They don't they specify a number of drinks no. Obviously you're responsible. You guys aren't going to put people in harm's way he or she gets to the airport and he walks down that jet bridge with his bag and he gets on that plane. Does he just go up? I trust all these mechanics. I trust this ground crew. This thing has had 100% walkthrough. It worked yesterday. It's gonna work today kind of attitude. Like I just described with your car. No,
1: not at all. Because if it didn't work yesterday, there will be a maintenance log describing exactly what went wrong. And oh, by the way, prior to every flight, one of the pilots does a walk around. So we still go out and visually inspect the aircraft to make sure it's ready to fly.
0: What are you looking for? That there's not a pigeon in the engine?
1: Yeah, there's not a pigeon in the engine. That's exactly That's right. That's
0: kind of a cool. That should be the title of your book. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> <not> writing a book. <laughs> there's not a pigeon in my engine. I wonder if it was a pigeon. Oh, shit, sorry. I wonder if it was a pigeon that went in. into the di- I wonder what kind of bird it was. It was Soli that had the goose hit his plane that went down into the Hudson.
1: It's, yeah, flocks of geese. Yeah,
0: uh, both engines. Both engines, right? So, what does this cause? Let's talk about and He became a national hero. He land he lands the jet in the Hudson. Is that an easy landing in a in an Airbus or whatever? What was he in? Do you remember?
1: He was an Airbus. He was yeah. an Airbus. Yeah, uh, you know, landing an airplane in water theoretically is probably pretty easy, right? Because you don't have any gear. The water's a little forgiving. But the time that they had to react and get the passengers and flight attendants prepared for this non standard landing, and oh, by the way, he's never landed on water, it's very challenging. There was a lot going on.
0: It was busy. They activate the Coast Guard so they're ready to get in there and get their boats and vessels in there to save the people. Because as soon as it hits the well, water, it's going under, right? Or does it float for a while?
1: It can float for a while. That was one thing. That was brought up is there's a, a switch you can push to kind of you know close all the openings and they didn't they didn't end up doing that obviously things were very busy um, so it could have sank a lot quicker than it normally would if that switch had been pushed.
0: What airport did he take off from was it JFK or oh, it was, or was LaGuardia. it J- LaGuardia? right I think, yeah I think yeah. you're right is how many commercial accidents have been? in america in since 9 11 which i don't even consider those accidents obviously they're not they were terrifying but they weren't the plane's fault and they weren't the pilot's fault that was something completely different than what we're talking about today right i've heard of private planes i've heard of you know cessna's going down and i've heard of you know some private jet crashes the one with the the golfer back in the day Hillerwin Irwin, i think it was oh, his, yeah, when they, they lost pressure they lost pressure they in the airplane breathing yeah um There's not a lot of commercial accidents, are there? No. Knock on wood.
1: Yeah. Did you
0: just knock on wood?
1: Yep. My head.
0: Um. Is it bad to talk about this? Is this a faux pas to talk about among pilots or like in a conversation like this? Because it's something that you don't get on a plane and say, "Man, you know, I'm gonna wreck." You just don't say that kind of shit. You don't say there's a bomb at the airport. You know, there's certain things you never say. Is this something that you don't talk about, or does it need to be talked about? About how safe air traffic or air air, air travel is, because I don't think there's been a whole lot of commercial accidents in America.
1: There hasn't, it's the safest it's ever been. And that is a big part of military and civilian aviation is the safety aspect and safety reports, which people can file pilots with zero repercussions so that other pilots can glean those lessons learned hey, this happened to me today. This is why. Don't let it happen to you. Or maybe it was not their fault at all and there's something wrong with the runway or the airport lighting or whatever. And it it all gets reported so that everybody can learn from it. And I I know for a fact, because I think that changed back in the 70s, that the safety reporting system is a no fault, to the pilot, so more people have come forward, and it's just increased the safety of of the industry in general.
0: What happened on that flight last year, the year before Rachel? When the I think I believe it was a female pilot. I think it was Southwest Airlines, where there was was it turbulence? Was it engine? What something happened to where somebody did pass away on the flight? Like hit her head or got hit in the the roof or something? Do you do you know the details of that?
1: I don't know all the details. I I know that you know there it's was a, a turbo hole in the plane. Engine. right? Part of the engine came apart and just the timing of it you know a piece actually ran into that woman's window and shattered it and because aircraft are pressurized the window wasn't able to hold so it blew out and then the pressure from the aircraft then pushed her out of the window and it was severe trauma to her head and neck as she's flailing around an open airline window
0: Ugh. It's just awful. Yeah,
1: this was super sad. this
0: was done. Be, this happened because of a motor, an engine failure, an engine failure. Something broke.
1: Something broke. Yes, and then a piece of the engine hit the window. Is From that, my understanding, I don't. Again, I don't know all the details, but
0: so this is going on. There are they on takeoff when this? Or are they right in the middle of a the flight? They, as far as I know, they were cruising at
1: altitude. Like nothing was going on.
0: Oh my gosh! And then she ends up landing it she ends up getting the plane to the ground safely right? and saving the rest of it. But I remember all the home videos that were being shot on iPhones and stuff up there. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Like that's the kind of shit that people think is going to happen when they get on an airplane. I, whether you like to hear it or not, not you personally, but or whether we like to talk about it or not, that's the kind of things that, I don't know if the media should ever report that shit because it's so uncommon that it never, it barely ever happens, but when it does, it's so drastic that it's like, oh my gosh, could it be, we be on the next one that does that. And is there any bigger fear besides maybe getting eaten by a shark than having something like that happen at 35,000 feet? I don't think so.
1: Cause you feel so out of control as a passenger. Is that correct? Is that why you think about those things?
0: Yeah, I think that the the questions I'm asking, the walk-arounds, the, the commitment to excellence and safety and focus, and could that have been prevented if the walk-around was a little bit more in-depth and detailed, or was it just a one, just one of those things that just very rarely happens where something failed when it shouldn't have? Happens every day in America on our roadways. Here, it happens in sawmills. It happens in tree-cutting incidents. And something can go wrong. Right. The odds aren't very high because there's... Even with something that horrific happening at 35,000 feet where that lady's in the position she's in, the rest of the passengers are scared for their lives. Every one of them survived with the safe landing with communication between that captain, first officer and, and air traffic control. And I remember some of the conversation, I heard some of the dialogue that was being said and the way that she kept her wits about her and stayed you know, calm and get, did her job is amazing that's not it's not easy it's easier said than done in my opinion to have that but yeah i think it needs to be talked about because why is there fear why would they have to exploit like you 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 there was another incident. i don't know a couple months ago five months ago where the 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 uh drink cart got thrown and tossed on a plane and hurt somebody and, and hurt one of the the flight attendants I don't think that happens very often I've been on hundreds and hundreds of flights and that's never happened I've been shaken up a little bit coming out of here going into Denver like I told you going into Phoenix I've had to take you know landing and something there's lightning all around Phoenix and they pull back up right before we hit the the runway and then they they reroute the flight over to a Pima I think it was and I was like oh my god that was close because right when we were coming in it just the wind shear shook us so bad that the pilot pulled out and I was like what a stud and he just stood there shaking our hands as we got off the plane I go thank you like you know it was unbelievable but we should talk about it what could go wrong what is, but it's not very common you as a pilot how many hours have you flown commercially now commercially you've been in it two years
1: I'm going on my third
0: you're going on your third year got like 700 700 hours have you ever encountered that type of turbulence where it throws the cart like that no never anything close no never Never. 700 hours. That's a lot of hours. Well, we work really hard to avoid the turbulence. (laughs) That's a lot of hours. So that just shows you. Do you have the facts for me?
1: Do you want, like, exact numbers? I'm sure that's
0: off. Yeah, I'd like to know what I'm dealing with here. (laughs) Fighter pilot, I know that.
1: That's commercial hours. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, how could you ever predict that an engine is going to shell itself and then throw a piece at that window to the point where the window can't, is damaged to the the point where it can't sustain the pressure anymore and, you know, liberate itself from the aircraft. Like, you can't go through life thinking of crazy scenarios like that, you know?
0: No, but then it happens, and then you can't help but think about it. (laughs) And now I'm kind of pissed off at myself for bringing it up today. Because <laughs> now I'm trying to think I don't about want it. I have to go fly. I <laughs> have to fly pretty soon.
1: I, yeah, I just would say look at the statistics, right? I mean, you brought it up in the very beginning. You know, it's, it's far more scary and more threatening for me to drive home from here and make it home safely than for me to fly for 20 years, you know?
0: I know, but nobody's afraid to drive. Well, there are some people that are afraid to drive or ride. Very uncommon though, you don't hear people like, I don't want to get my driver's license. They're freaking chomping at the bit to get their driver's license, right? Right. And then they go out there and there's so many things that can go wrong. You never have control of the other driver you always got to be focused now today more than ever with texting and driving and all the different shit that's going on you got you just don't know who to trust like you do you even want to go out and drive around or is it just a matter of time that something's going to happen you got to be very aware when you're doing that and where i was going with that comment about your 700 hours or however many commercial hours you have and never encountering that type of turbulence is is that unforeseen too is that something that the instruments can't pick up that type of turbulence doesn't register because on the planes that I've ridden in the cockpit you see the lights of like I think it's green yellow red and if you don't want to go if it's red you want to you know reroute and get around that disturbance because that's like the highest level of turbulence aren't these instruments picking that up to where the plane never gets in a position to where it gets that bad to shake the shake the, the vessel that much
1: well, I think what you're talking about the green, yellow, red is the radar display, and that is reflective on precipitation. So it's not necessarily indicative of turbulence that you can get in clear air. And yeah, sometimes you you know, with all the weather tools available to us on the aircraft, through ATC, through the weather shop, you can just hit unpredicted turbulence. And that's why you should have your seatbelt task
0: like yeah. I I wear it all the time. <laughs> but it, It's amazing to me how many people just like when the seatbelt lights on, they're just like, I'm getting up. I'm going. I'm like, no, that's not respect what these guys are trying to do. Well, you're putting us in harm's way. they're the missile,
1: right? Yeah. If they're not strapped down, I don't want your foot in my face.
0: Yeah. Or your head making contact with mine at hundred miles an hour. If you get thrown around, like you could, that could cause damage. Well,
1: maybe Chad, maybe that's your safety valve is you just wear a helmet when you fly now. Well, let I'll me give have you that one helmet. Of those. There I would you wear. Go. I would wear that in a heartbeat. Put the visor down, and you're good to go. I
0: would wear that in a heartbeat.
1: This is taking forever. What is it? My hours.
0: Well, I believe you. I can't even find
1: it on here. There we go. Five hundred eighty-four. So, what is that? hundred and twenty-six less than what I told you. 580,
0: 584 hours in two years? Three years. Three. Is that is that normal hours or is that part-time?
1: That's part-time, yeah.
0: Cause you're a mommy. I'm a mama. Which is even more important now for you to be focused and get home safe. But it's so easy for you to fly these huge Tonka truck planes compared to what you used to do. I've always heard that with fighter pilots that this is like backing up a school bus when you're in one of these things now. Because like you just showed me that video and that dude's spinning circles and flips up above you and you're not even watching the road, your head's looking up out of your, what is it called? The, the canopy. The canopy, you're just looking up and the plane's going this way, but you're probably on autopilot, yeah? No. No, you oh. have control of that. So you can just let go and just like, you're not gonna run into anything. There's yeah, nothing. what's sort of run into? I don't know, another plane? that's the other thing is how many military training airspace there was nobody else there how many people or how many flights take off from american or is it a better question to say, how many flights are in American airspace on any given day at any given time? Have you ever looked into those kind of stats? How many are taken off from O'Hara and JFK and Atlanta is probably the busiest airport in the world or one of them, not the world in America. Um, LAX, there's, is it 20,000? Is it 15,000? How many planes are taken off with no accidents or no disturbances or anything? We should ask Alexa.
1: Yeah, it's in the thousands. I mean, it's when 9-11 happened, and nobody was flying, like there was noticeable changes in the atmosphere because those aircraft weren't there, if that makes any sense. I mean, it, it's...
0: It does, but explain. Act like I don't know what I'm talking about or what you're saying.
1: <laughs> well, so if you want to know numbers, I mean, you've seen those charts, right? We've all looked at those charts.
0: Of how many, how many aircrafts are in the air mm. at one time?
1: Aircraft.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of them.
1: Uh, time yeah i this would be a great question. You should have an air traffic controller on here. I want to uh, do you know any? I could find one for I, sure.
0: I too stressed to come on here and then I would stress them out more.
1: Nine thousand seven hundred and twenty eight
0: in the air at the same time, or that's a day in that total that's flights an
1: average in the past year there were an average of nine thousand seven hundred and twenty eight planes in the sky at any given time.
0: What sky? American US. American airspace.
1: American airspace.
0: Wow, ten thousand at any given time, almost.
1: One one million two hundred seventy thousand four hundred six people.
0: Wait, what is that? How many? That's how many of those flights? How many? This pe- is at that?
1: leisure.com though. I don't know how much we trust them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so ten thousand planes in the sky at any given time. You very rarely see another aircraft on a commercial flight. It's cool when you do, especially when they're going the opposite direction
1: we because of our range of view up there we see them a lot more than you would you do crisscrossing everywhere
0: what is the jet stream and what does it mean and where is it and how does it flow and why does it take so much longer to fly to reno from nashville than it does to go from reno to nashville i mean reno to nashville you go faster to the west takes a lot longer okay explain the jet stream and all of that to me or is that is that simple? Is that simple uh, weather and meteorology stuff and stuff that I should have no. learned in high school?
1: Well, whatever. I probably should have learned some other things in high school too. But in general, I mean, it's just a trough of air that continually circles the northern hemisphere and it changes altitudes, it changes um, latitudes, but in general, it's always flowing from West to east. I mean, there's certainly some points where we'll take a dip you know, down or back up and so the actual section of that jet stream it's flowing southerly or it's flowing northerly. But in general, it's from west to east. And it's very typically at altitudes that airlines fly at. So if you're going from the east coast to the west coast, sometimes it can add an hour as compared to going west coast to east coast between the same two cities. Because it's just pushing you it's like trying to take a boat upstream as opposed to downstream so
0: is it safe to say that more turbulence would occur on a westbound flight from the east coast when you're going against the jet stream jet stream is it does it more turbulent that way because you're going against the natural flow
1: not really and again it all depends because you can certainly hit those um, those altitudes where the turbulent air is flowing to the east coast um, and feel it, and I think a lot of times it's where you transition from the jet stream to altitudes above or below it, where you hit a lot of the turbulence. So it's really dependent on your altitude as opposed to which direction you're going, what, what turbulent air that you're flying into, what layer you're in of the atmosphere. And it's, it changes every day. That's why there's such an extensive flight planning process that includes meteorological information so you know where to, where to put the airplane. In the sky you know
0: when you're in denver and you take off some of the flights that i've encountered and experienced personally in denver when you take off a lot of the times we're taking off to the south we're headed south we're on the east part of the valley over by the kansas border kind of. and you're flying south out of dia rockies are to your right which is the west and then obviously the north behind you but when you're it's they don't gain a lot of altitude for a long period of time I assume this is to clear other planes because of the traffic coming into this airport or is this weather related? its I don't know if you've experienced this flying in and out of Denver as a passenger or as a pilot, but it seems like we stay at the same altitude for a long period of time and get way out there before we start to turn to the west to start climbing over the Rockies. Does that question make sense at all? Or is yeah. that is that a common practice of just staying kind of low? Because when you come out of Reno, you're up and you're out over the mountains to the east. If you're going to Salt Lake or Denver somewhere, you know exactly when you're going to turn by, when you get down by Pleasant Valley or Washoe Valley a little bit. You start to turn to the left, to the east, and start to head up you know, out to the eastern United States. But in Denver, it seems like you stay at that that low level for a while. I've, I've, I've encountered it or experienced it in other airports too. Is that air traffic control just making sure that you're staying at this level because there's other traffic coming in
1: it it depends on every situation it could either be air traffic control keeping you low for either traffic coming in weather above or most times we'll be flying a um, departure procedure which is a map built in three dimensions that we can read on a piece of paper that shows, you know, left, right, you know, lateral and also altitudes that we're going to fly to depart an airport. And so maybe that departure that you've been on is built with lower altitudes initially for whatever reason, again, maybe there's an arrival coming in above it. And so that departure procedure keeps you at lower altitudes until you're clear of that traffic. So. In those specific instances i couldn't give you an answer unless i knew the radio calls or what departure they were on but i would love to pull up a plate for you to look at you could see the three-dimension depiction of what is probably going on for you departing Denver I, to the
0: south for some reason it always worries me and makes me tense like what's up and why aren't we climbing out of here faster what's going on
1: well and are you absolutely positive that you've leveled off though or does it just appear that you've leveled? Up?
0: I just don't feel like I'm watching it. It just seems like we're staying there at this one level, this one altitude, and it's not very high off the ground. I mean, it's a, maybe a thousand feet. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's not like you're climbing. You're getting out of there, you get to six thousand feet to hear that light, you know, buzz, blink, and say that and get on my laptop. It takes you're a minute. waiting a long
1: time. Yeah. For that light to come on.
0: Yeah, and I don't. I never understood why. Is and the only thing that ever made sense is that they're finding if it's cloudy and they're finding a hole in the clouds to climb through or is that it... is
1: for sure a possibility because really? again you know if you have a hole in the clouds versus flying through that thunderstorm to the right you're gonna hit a lot of turbulence and it's unsafe to fly through that thunderstorm so you're gonna wait maybe to get altitude so you can hit that clear airspace
0: would you ever fly through would she, would air traffic control ever allow you to fly through that thund- thunderstorm
1: if they even allowed it, which they shouldn't, I wouldn't accept that clearance. That's dumb. You know, that's where so many safety accidents have come from: is thunderstorms, microbursts. You just go around them.
0: Yeah, that big. Or pl- go over the top. Go over the top of them, but you got to get above them somehow right you got when you're taking off you're saying that when you take off and there's a thunderstorm over here you could potentially fly through that if air traffic control gives you the go-ahead why would they ever give you the go-ahead they shouldn't because they can't tell what the, they shouldn't they shouldn't yeah but it happens
1: no no i mean not I, we're talking purely theoretics here it really should never you just should never get clearance to go through a thunderstorm they're constantly telling us where to go to avoid thunderstorms because they're so such a threat to aircraft there's so, you know, not talking
0: about it, but. Can you visually see them from the, from where you're sitting? Can you spot them from a mile away? But and then you've got to talk, take into consideration when you're flying at night, you're depending on your instruments 100% at nighttime, right? You do not really have a lot of visuals at that time.
1: If, if that's when you like the lightning because you can see the thunderstorms. Really? Because even if it's, you know, a thunderstorm that's sort of dying out and there's not a lot of lightning coming out of it, it's still turbulent air. You still don't want to fly through it that's what's more difficult at night. But if it's, you know, the Midwest in the summer and just active line of thunderstorms, I mean, they're they're lit up like a disco club. It's very easy to see and you just avoid them via visual cues, your radar, and what ATC is telling you and what planes in front of you are saying, where they're going, what hole they're shooting for kind of thing.
0: Wow, that's so awesome. It's so like it's, but it is, it's comforting to know that 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 stuff is going on because it's easy to think the worst when you're sitting back there and you're like oh my god it's i was flying from atlanta to b- bonus is argentina last year
1: really yeah i wanted to go there
0: yeah it's awesome. long story okay oh you want to fly there
1: i we brian and i were going to go there um
0: until mom was really going downhill so as a vacation you home. mean yes um we're getting over we're over miami over i could see cuba they're talking about there's cuba off to your left and it's just mad lightning and freaking turbulence you know and this little this little flight attendant she's probably 60 years old she's like this is nothing she's like you know people that fly out arizona they get worried about she's like i'll serve drinks and this and i'm just like wow and i was like watching it just lightning hitting all around and it was sketchy as shit. but there was no worry to her it was like we were climbing out of it, and we were, and then I fell asleep and woke up, and we landed in Argentina, and it was just like wow, like unbelievable. Like I had first class, which it's, I'm humbled to have. So have, have so it was an amazing experience.
1: It's man. a long flight, yeah. Uh, yeah it's not eight or nine hours. Yeah, but I, it's I, really they're really beautiful to watch when you're flying. They were awesome. next to them, which is for the most part safe, right? If you're far enough away. It just looks like they're really close because they're so lit up and they're huge and- i've
0: experienced that a lot going down to like fort lauderdale that part of florida oh God, yeah, where florida. you're where you're way out and you're just looking and you're just seeing them hit and the pilot like knows exactly how far to stay away before he approaches it goes into his final approach into the lauderdale airport or, or she- miami or she yeah you know what i mean that's again it's like <laughs> it's shit. awesome but you read the statistics. <laughs> <laughs> less than 1%. So when yeah. you're in this F16 now, what would your what would your phone say if you looked it up if there was report of how many hours you flew an F16 fighter jet? 500. 500. Yeah. 500. So what would a what's an average flight? Is it an hour a day?
1: Yeah, for this for argument's sake, 1 hour is is it if you're not going to we call it hitting a tanker. So Air-to-air refuel, you know, your flights can kind of go an unlimited amount of time, really just based on human factors, if there is a tanker airborne. But a typical training mission or not you know, a typical mission when we're when we're in Germany or in Korea
0: be an hour. Well is does fuel play a role into that? It's always how many, the biggest role. How long can you fly an F-16? I guess you're, is is there an average speed you're flying in an F-16 at any given time when you're on a mission?
1: Yeah, it's typically subsonic, you know, what 500 miles per hour, am I seeing that right? But it's gas is hugely limiting because the jet's pretty um, small on its own and then they put, depending on your loadout, different weapons on, different bombs, different sensors, targeting pods, it all adds weight. It all adds drag. You need more gas. So then they put two fuel tanks on, which th- does extend your flight time, but not, not significantly.
0: How much experience did you have filling up in flight with a tanker next to you? Does this happen quite often?
1: No. Be- once again, because I never flew in combat. Brian has probably gone to the tanker more times than he could remember.
0: Every sortie that's got to be nerve-wracking huh? or is that just like riding a bike too
1: it it definitely gets the point like riding a bike like you can wow. be peeing and tanking at the same
0: time you're going 500 miles an hour and you can take a leak and fill up with gas at the same time in f-16 rachel um there's toilets built into the cockpit seats no. Oh, <laughs> I was just wondering where they're no. t- taking
1: the pee. It's a, that's you, a whole nother podcast of how to pee in a jet
0: for dudes and girls, to be honest. Wow, I'm interested now. It really, I didn't never even cross my mind that on a mission, you have to get up and go to the bathroom.
1: Well, there's no bathroom to get up. You can't even get
0: up. You got there's pickle no, jars and stuff in there, huh?
1: There's... Um, the primary thing is piddle packs, but for girls, it, it's just different, it's hard.
0: You have to maneuver and pull your pants down at well, you're in a jumpsuit, aren't you? You have a flight suit on.
1: Um, a lot of times you have what we call a poopy suit. So an anti-exposure suit, it's like a wetsuit in case you eject and land in the freezing cold water. Then your harness is all latched up around your
0: you legs. You go to the parachute. bathroom. It's not easy. So are you not drinking any water like 10 hours leading up to this flight?
1: A lot of girls would we called it tactically dehydrate ourselves so that you wouldn't have to because it was damn near impossible. And I have to say like it's a big push right now and a lot of the f- services to address that issue and make it easier because nobody ever thought about it really before. No, I'm thinking
0: about it right now. If you're in theater and you're freaking going at it for five hours, like Brian was up in, over Iraq for five hours at a time. I mean, you're not eating or drinking for a while leading up to that flight. I would think that because it's so uncomfortable even think about trying to do that.
1: Yeah. And the guys, obviously it's a little bit easier for them. They got to the point where I think Brian's biggest issue peeing in the jet was one time he ran out of piddle packs and he really had to go. I forget what he did, but yeah, it's, it's a lot easier for them.
0: I can imagine why. There's, I mean, a,
1: there's a song about it, actually.
0: Is there really? <laughs> we won't go there, though. So you're 500 miles an hour average. You have 500 hours in an F-16 jet. You're sad because you're, this is coming to an end. You called it your Finny flight, meaning you're finished? Right. last Air Force aircraft flight. And this is going to take place in Texas in January of 2020? Yes. In what aircraft?
1: I'll probably fly the T-6 that I'm in now. No, you got to get into the 16. Well, they don't have 16s at that base.
0: Well, they got to send you back to Luke or somewhere. They can't send you out in a T-6. This isn't going to work. Yeah.
1: I, a buddy of mine just took his Finney flight. He's an A-10 guy and he was a T-6 instructor with me, but he did his Finney in a 38. I was like, yeah, that might be the way to go. Fly the pointy fast jet one last time.
0: So we'll see. I have to do it. I have to get in one. I, we have to figure this out. Not that I'm anybody, but I just, I remember being such a huge Bo Jackson fan in high school. And I, I know that that threw you off, but Bo's book, Bo Knows Bo, he talked about when he got to go up and do a 15 or a 16 and the way it made him feel. And he's like, there's nothing that compares to it. And that dude won the Heisman. He's done everything in football and right. b- baseball. And he says, there's nothing that compared to what, what I felt like up there. And then my I got to
1: think about this one then. there's, a friend, there's a, ways. A
0: friend of mine, Michael Waddell, who has a TV show called Bone Collector on the Outdoor Channel. I don't know, probably 6 or 7 seasons ago, he got to go up with the Blue Angels. It showed him doing his training, it showed him doing his breathing, yes. showed him in the cockpit. They had p- point of view cameras on him and he went up and they were doing maneuvers and everything and I'm like, "This lucky bastard, how did he do this?" And I'm I'm so ask I, him. That's one of those things where they just don't give out secrets like that because they want to stay on that level, (laughs) right? But when I was when I was talking with Bry one night, I'm like, he's like, oh yeah, man, we'll get out over Boca or Frenchmans, and we'll be like ten feet off the water. We'll hit this, and I'm like, I want to go. And so he's trying to work it. I guess it's just so impossible. Like your brother couldn't even get clearance, could he?
1: I think our best option is probably one of those civilian companies flying. They're flying mirages, I think. they don't have the government clearances.
0: Could you film? Could you fly me in one of their jets?
1: I couldn't. I'm, I don't work for them. I'm not trained in that aircraft. Brian couldn't, but all the dudes that work for them are bros. Like I'm sure we could hook it up.
0: Ex-military.
1: Yes, some still current.
0: I don't know if I want to do that. I think I'm, I'm too picky. I think I need to be in a military fighter jet.
1: <laughs> These are for American previous pride. military fighter jets. They we'll,
0: are. We'll, we'll we'll research it. How bad would it freak me out? honestly like if i'm sitting behind you and you're doing was this dude freaked out at all this polish photographer no but you weren't doing much he was just in there you were just stabilizing to take pictures of the plane that was doing the maneuvers is that right
1: that was what yeah because that's what he wanted he was driving the fight what he wanted he got so we had
0: you weren't doing anything like when i went up into the when I went up into Blackhawk and we did some trick stuff, that, uh, I, did, I got to do that in Minnesota. No, and I'm he, jealous. He did some stuff of like turning off the motor and, and, and just flying it just ground level right into, I thought we were gonna go into these trees and he pulled it up and I, we had to drop off all my camera crew and my buddy Alex that was in there. They were all throwing up. Yep, And I, they, he, I said, land it and let him out film us from the, from the tower. They got him up in the tower and I stayed on that thing. And he looked at me and he goes, dude, this is unreal. I go, what do you mean? He goes, nobody ever wants to stay in here and let me do some stuff. Uh, he goes, I'm usually flying around congressmen or dignitaries and shit. <laughs> and they're throwing up. And, and they're throwing up and they just want to just hover above the ground and stuff. And I'm like, just do it because here's how I see it. You'll
1: it, never do it again.
0: The moral of this podcast or the moral of this story is that I don't think I could trust anybody more than I would trust a fighter pilot Pilot flying a commercial jet, or that Black Hawk that's been—I think at that time he'd been at nine tours. I'm like, of course I'm going to do everything in my power to do everything you can do in this thing that I'm allowed to do because I trust you. If we go down, then it was—it wasn't meant to be, you know. I—I I wanted to experience exactly what he wanted to do, yeah. and I trust him. Like that's how I would feel. Like if that's why I asked you, could I fly with you or Brian? Because you guys have flown over Iraq and done your thing, and I'd be like. I would I would trust them with everything, because it just doesn't seem that anything can ever amount to that. Like there's no reason not to trust you with everything. Of uh, when it comes to getting in an F16, and that's my attitude when I was with that with that Black Hawk. Guy. I was like, just do it. And my guys are like, you're nuts. Get out of there. And I'm like, no, you know, just film and we filmed it. We aired it. We aired, it. We aired a two part episode. It's killing.
1: Is that on one of your websites?
0: I'll video? send you the links. That's cool. It's really cool. I'm jealous. I, and I'm, I, I'm not trying to sound ignorant, I'm going to send you, but I can't remember the name of the base up there. What's the big Minnesota base where the, where, uh, army base, it's an army, it's oh, unreal. Air Force girl. Dude, I, or, I got to know the commander, the commander up there for, um, through duck hunting. He was a duck hunter. And he, and he invited us up awesome. to train. I got to shoot the cannons. I got to shoot the machine guns. I got to train with them. Oh, there were so many different training groups up there, and I got to do it all.
1: That is so cool.
0: They played a trick on me, though. Where You'll have to watch the episode. It starts off with the trick they played on me.
1: With a duck?
0: No, with a cannon. <laughs> it's some military trick, and they got me bigger than heck on it.
1: Camp Ripley?
0: Yep, that's it. All right.
1: Shout out to Camp Ripley.
0: I also did the training in the Florida one with the Army Rangers. Snake training and um, with the Ranger Battalion. And I'm in contact right now of potentially getting to get approved for a tandem jump at 10,000 feet. Which I've always told myself I would never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. But here I am again saying there's nobody in the, no friend of mine could say, Hey, Saturday, we're going out here to this private deal, we're gonna jump out play. I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. But with this guy, with Carlos or John Howerton, these guys have done tons of tours. I trust them. I trust them and I'll jump out. And I'm like, well, what's that scar from? And what's that scar from? And they do this halo jumping and shit, and they're explaining this all to me. And I'm like, How high were you? And they're like, nineteen thousand feet, and I'm like, what and then like they they got to land without you know they can't just float down in enemy territory so the, the the you know the way they pull their shoots and the timing and the feet above the ground that they do it they're breaking bones and shit sometimes when they land and so they just go and they the scars on their on their calves are not on their ankles and shins and stuff and their forearms is from falling from hitting the ground on these missions and i'm like dude i am such a pathetic human being for never, ever, I was telling your husband this. I'm like, see,
1: that's how I look at them. mm -hmm. Like, it's so easy to just stay 20,000 feet above all that. (laughs) No,
0: that's a huge responsibility. Jumping right into it. I never even entered. I never even entered or filled out an application. I never once, I was telling your brother, your husband, Brian, it never once crossed my mind when he told me the story about his freaking brother in nine 11 and all of that. And that's why they went. I was like, it never crossed my mind what a pansy i woke up and watched those towers go down and the horror the horrific shit that was going on in our country and it never crossed my mind to get over there like that football player from the cardinals did tillman uh, Tillman. yeah that he he died for our country over there never crossed my mind to go over there and these guys are doing it because of their pride in this country and to provide safety for our country And i'm like oh my gosh i am such a piece of such a a pansy and that's why that's why i try so hard now with our military endeavors of being able to provide therapy and go bring them out to what we do because they need that so all of them every time i'm with a soldier or a a female or male i've been with both of them in the duck blind and talking to them about what they've experienced being in theater what they feel like when their boots hit american soil again and what they want to do family in the outdoors family and get in the woods and the woods are therapy to them so i always ask them i go do you ever look down at somebody like me that never had the the notion to ever even go and they're like no not one bit No, you're doing your part by doing this for us you were put on the world the earth to do something different than we were it's a total different mindset not everybody has it and if everybody did something would be up that we need people doing a bunch of different things it's really taught me it's really given me a different perspective as i mature and i may have matured slower than some i may have matured faster than some but as i keep maturing into my life i i really learn the perspective of kindness and passion and respect and manners and all of these things that the, that I see through my dealings with all these people I'm like I'm never ever going to get frustrated with somebody working at McDonald's again because I, I had this conversation of condescending attitudes on people that feel like they can treat somebody the way they are because they're assumed to be lesser of a person right. I've grown compassionate to where when I go into McDonald's now and I see a 70 year old lady working the register I sit there and go one she's probably maybe bored and needs this you know wants to just interact two she went through a bad financial deal it has to work which is sucks that really
1: sucks yeah. and i
0: get this weird feeling that comes over me like i want to help him, like i want to give to him, and like be like so i never i'm finding myself getting less and less i don't even know how we got off on this but only, but she's working yes instead of
1: Begging yes. on the Yes. And street. so I've,
0: I found myself getting less and less frustrated if she might do something different or slower than I would like her to do that certain something. Right. I'm starting to be more understanding of like, ah, an extra five minutes ain't gonna kill me it's not gonna you you know i'm I'm probably taking five minutes off of my life by eating this mcdonald's (laughs) so (laughs) let's not rush to put it in my body man let's live a little bit longer so i'm really but the military and being around people like you and brian and learn i wanted to learn about his brother more but i I could show you so many episodes the the man the man that just got put in charge of all anti-terrorism admiral joe mcguire through donald trump he's duck hunting with me several times i text him he's a dear friend of and I've gotten to sit and drink, sip wine with him. I've gotten to sit in the duck blind with him. I can learn about his days as a seal. What he did as a seal. What he, I mean, and I just sit there and go, oh my gosh, I'm hunting with a four star admiral. That's now got one of the most important jobs in our country. And I got to text him and tell him congratulations because of a freaking mallard duck. That's so that great. hole right there. Those woods right there is in Arkansas. That's I can, I can send you episode links of, of Joe McGuire with me there. With Tom, Tom Arthur, who's a Purple Heart recipient from Vietnam. Scott, uh, I, I, I brag about my friend Scott all the time. He was special forces. He took a bullet for our country. He hunts with me, uh, Colorado, Arkansas. So I, and I've, I've have several other ones. I'm going to send you some links, my, the military stuff. Yeah. And you're going to be like, hunting is so cool because it's opened up this network to where I have a platform now to where I had... The ability to call—I would have never had this conversation with you without this platform. I—I would, would have hoped we would have, but time is limited, so we had to dedicate time to it. Right. And it's a nice conversation. It teaches me about what you did and what you sacrificed and what you—you know—your feelings about everything. What your husband did. You, I could. It's so important, and that's people are like, "Well, why do you podcast?" And I'm like. I don't know, you kind of got to be famous to go get interviewed by Howard Stern. You got to be on a different level to get invited on The Ellen Show. You know, theoretically you do. Podcasting allows these stories that should be told not that it's any. Not that we're not pushing this down the throat. Right. You don't have to listen to this. But if we write a description of this thirty-something female that is a fighter pilot that did all of this and now is a commercial pilot at the same time as raising kids and being married and went through the horrific bullshit you went through with your mom and your dad and all that, this is, We're not even getting into that. But there's so many cool stories out there in America, in the world. And this is my the TV show and my traveling and this network has given me the ability to. Learn and and, and figure out that, man, life is so much bigger than my needs every day of like to where it's literally like slowing me down to where I'm like, not as geared, not as focused on the end result or the end game anymore. Enjoy the moment more. Take more days off. Yeah. Yeah. And this, it really teaches you that when you start to converse, which in today's society is getting harder and harder to do with how easy it is to get a message to somebody or not get them you know not talk to them right i talk about it all the time about going into a restaurant and watching tables of people and you're just like why are they talking to I, each other i remember other? going into the gold and silver with dad and they would all be talking to each other over coffee right we don't even talk to each other at lunch anymore no and it's just we're like our phones, and, and our that's earth. why i do this yeah. that's why i do this your brother listens to him and he sent me a text awesome george brett podcast i'm to keep Wade's interest, you know, to have him listen to that. He's not doing that just because we're best friends. He's doing right, that because it's interesting It's interesting because there's cool stories out there. Right. And that's why I do this is that I have the ability now or the platform and the network to get all the, yesterday, Brent Cobb sat where you're sitting. He is the baddest ass singer, songwriter in Nashville. He's, he's opening up for Chris Stapleton right now. And he sat right there yesterday. That's so great. It is
1: right where I'm sitting. Yeah. That is so cool.
0: And before him, this girl right here's just got a cut. She just is opening up for Marin Morris right now. Her name's Haley Witters. She's a badass singer-songwriter. I would have never met her if it wasn't for hunting.
1: Isn't that crazy? Yeah. How stuff.
0: And I could keep going. Falls in your lap. I know. George Brett. Was my childhood hero and now he's my friend because of a mallard duck and hunting he's done the podcast i sat in his house in kansas city last in in august traeger barbecued with him for five hours and the next went to a royals game that night and sat in his box and then got to sit at a podcast and talk to him about his baseball career and i used to drive from here to oakland to watch him play third base for the royals that's so cool and now i text now you're talking to him we're tight. You're I stay at his house. I get to I get to go to his pad in, in Scottsdale when the when spring training's there, and get to have barbecues down there. And he makes me margaritas with Crystal Light. And he's so proud of them, and they are pretty good. But it's freaking George Brett, right? And like to you, like that might be. It might, there's somebody else that would feel that way. But I get to hang out with all these people and talk to them because of really the common denominator being hunting and well,
1: and loving hunting. Loving like it's it. so part of. You and your family, your soul. My whole life. Yeah.
0: But to be able to do what hunting has brought me with the military, since season one, I knew how important it was. We work with the Freedom Hunters. Anthony Pace in Colorado started a thing called the Freedom Hunters, a nonprofit group that brings soldiers out to the field once they return from theater and brings them on all-expense-paid trips. Special Ops Excursion does only special ops active duty. When they're not in theater, they bring them on world badass world-class hunts all over America. They're going to Africa right now. I work with Scott Graves, who's the founder and CEO of Special Ops Excursions. So I think that my, my, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is that even though I'm not afraid to admit that I didn't have the guts to do what you did or what Brian did or what these guys that I get to hunt with. You never I'm,
1: said that. You had the guts. You just went a different path.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I probably wasn't. I just never even crossed my mind. Never ever cross, isn't nothing, that weird? That's nothing. Really I wonder like if that. it ever crossed Wade's mind. He was a big manly football player. I wonder if he ever sat down and went, you know what, I need to go do something about this. I, I've never talked to him about it.
1: But who's to say you guys didn't, like you're saying, you, you did do stuff about it. You just didn't sign your name to join the military. It doesn't mean that you weren't fighting for the country. True. Like so many people were like, let's band. I mean, honestly, like I can't remember of a time in our lives where the country was more united than that day, unfortunately.
0: Do you remember where you were?
1: I know exactly where I was. I was in my room, my flight room, T-38's Laughlin Air Force Base, Del Rio, Texas, watching the towers fall.
0: So that would have been about, what time did they hit? Was it 9 Eastern when it happened? Was it a little bit later than that? What time was it in the morning in Central Time in Texas?
1: It was, I want to say around 9 a.m. We'd had a test that morning. We'd gone... To get breakfast in the operations cafeteria, and then we were just sitting around in the flight room and
0: watching the TVs. What's the mindset of the military when this is going on? Is it like, "Let's go, it's time to roll"?
1: I remember thinking, "Thank God I'm in the military right now because I want to kill somebody." <laughs> that did
0: that. that went and did yeah, the
1: when we were, you know, because at first, you know, we're student pilots. We see the first smoking tower. Like, what dumbass didn't see that massive building? You know, we think it was an accident, and then as they progress, obviously it wasn't. So, it was um, it was an interesting place to be in, watching all
0: that unfold.
1: I'm like, I'm really glad I was with all my bros at that point. You
0: know, were you with any sisters? One. Yeah. There was one other one.
1: <laughs> it's funny. It's been a big argument lately whether bros is a.
0: Gender-specific term or not? Oh, is that is that something now? Is that is that a thing now? Yeah. So when you say bros, it could be as girl now. When you're when,
1: talking to chick fighter pilots, when we say bros, and I think when you're talking to dude fighter pilots and they say bros, they don't think other men.
0: Really? They so think, like, if you're talking to a woman fighter pilot, you would call her "What's up, bro?"
1: Not to her. No, not. So you're just saying on in one. general as bros, they're everybody. Yeah. Like people, you the people you. So go to you guys war were
0: with. just ready to roll when that happened. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think, wasn't everybody?
0: I, just ca- it? I keep thinking about what was happening leading up to that at the places in Florida where they were training at, the mindset that they were over here getting trained, knowing what those bastards were getting ready to do. And then that morning, how they got through security or how they got into that pilot uniform. Did they get hired previously because they graduated? I don't remember all the details, but how did they get into the... into the plane in uniform in the first place. I didn't remember them
1: being in uniform. I thought they were just passengers and the policies of the airlines at the time were if you were getting hijacked, you let them into the cockpit, I think is what
0: happened. Really, I thought that they posed as pilots or maybe you're right and and they broke into the cockpit with a terrorist hijacking threat and then they had already trained on how to fly that certain aircraft. Maybe that's what it was. This
1: was a whole new form of terrorism, right? Before it was, hey, you pilots take us there. I feel dumb for not knowing that. I feel dumb too.
0: I don't know if they got in there in civilian clothes and had the weapons on them, or if they were actual in pilot uniforms and acted as a pilot. Because that would mean that if there was two regular pilots in there that they would have had to drag dead pilots out of the cockpits to get in there. There wouldn't be enough room for three bodies in there, would there?
1: And they did. In fact, I think it was one of the United Pilots um, bled to death right by the galley because
0: they, oh, it's horrible Because they, they slit his throat. God damn! I need to find out about that. I need yeah, to, I, need I don't want to do talk about
1: it because I don't remember the specifics. No, I don't either. Was, I don't want
0: to sound ignorant because right. I don't remember how they got into that cockpit. I just can't imagine that while we're going to school and you're training in Texas, that that shit's going on in our backyard and we had no idea.
1: I mean, a lot of people had ideas that this could happen, and the right people didn't listen to them. I guess. Really? So it just had to be proven it could be done, and then now there's precautions. Then
0: we got the other one the other day. We got the ISIS leader the day before yesterday.
1: I don't watch the news,
0: sorry. You don't? (laughs) No.
1: (laughs) We don't have cable anymore.
0: You don't? You just watch Netflix?
1: Apparently we took out number one, right?
0: Yeah. You watch Netflix?
1: I don't really watch anything. You don't binge watch? Apparently I need to start watching your...
0: I'm gonna send you and Brian. Some, I'm, and- no, I'm just gonna send you guys some links that you can put on your smart TV if you have one and and watch these military episodes. They're they're cool. Yeah, it makes us yeah. feel awesome when we get to do it because you're just like you're just like so humbled to know that we did one called Humbled and Humbled Part Two, Navy Seal Seal Team Six a guy named Jake Young. Um, when, when we're done, I'll show you the pictures around the corner. He was on his sixth tour. And he was taken, he was outside in the barracks, taking a leak and, um, I want to make sure I get this right. No helmet on thing. Comes over the fence, blows up. The guy taking a leak with him loses his leg. He's carrying him back into the, into the place. And he gets in there and grabs his helmet. And then they go back out and get in a firefight for like five hours. He comes back in, gets undressed, takes his helmet off and it's full of blood and he thinks that he just scratched himself you know in the fight well when that vault, when that grenade came over the shrapnel went into his head and um all the way lodged into his brain he stayed over there for eight more months of a nine-month mission no six more months he was on his third month of a nine-month mission stayed over there fighting for six months got back and didn't remember who his wife was they kept getting and he didn't know how old his kids were he couldn't find direct he couldn't get directions and find his way to the kids school he, he, like, they were just seeing all these signs, so they go to couples therapy because they think he's, like, not into the marriage anymore. And, right. the, and the therapist says, You, something bigger's going on here. We need to do a CAT scan. And so they do it on his brain. He's got all that shrapnel lodged into his brain, and he lost all of his short term memory. So he's never allowed to operate a motor. This is a SEAL Team 6.
1: Is this permanent damage then? Yes. They weren't able to no. remove it. Or he
0: anything? went, he was in nine different hospitals and over 30 procedures.
1: Jesus.
0: He's never allowed to operate a car again. He can't drive, all this stuff. So I'm sitting in the duck blind with this guy, listening to this story. SEAL Team Six, the baddest of the bad. Right. And he's like disabled to the point to where he wants to be over there fighting still. Right. That's the weirdest attitude to me. Like, I want to go back. I want to be over there with my bros. Like, I want to be there now, there. And I'm like, what? Like what is gonna stop you? It's just a different mindset. It's awesome. We yeah. it's so undervalued, in my opinion. To where I love talking about it of what our experiences were to show people like dude, these, this is a different caliber of people that we're dealing with here, in my opinion. They're doing shit that we would never fathom doing. If you really and if you get you into tried, you would die. Yeah. Yeah. If you get into their stories of what they've done, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. The movies depict it. It's like you see it in a way, and it's really happening.
1: It's really happening. It's really
0: happening. Yeah. It's not just Hollywood.
1: And that's, that's what gets me, right? Because again, in my mind, it's super easy for us to just fly above it all. They're the ones doing the work. On the ground. Getting shrapnel in their brain, you know? Yeah, I think our job is easy compared to that.
0: I don't know about the definition. of. I don't think easy is the right word to define that job. Well, it's know. a
1: relative term, I
0: guess. Yeah, easy is not a good one though. I don't think it's easy. Well, it's easier. Well, than their job. That's you're saying that from from
1: my Rachel's perspective.
0: I, and I respect that, but you're also saying that they would say you you think that they could get in and fly that jet? Maybe not. They might think that that's very difficult, and that's why they choose to do ground fights or do different segments of the army maybe
1: maybe yeah it's funny you bring this up because we just had our end of season soccer party at our house and i had a couple of the dads say i had no idea what a badass you were and it's it takes me back every time because every time i go volunteer in like my kids classrooms like those teachers to me are badasses because they're doing a job i could not do like i do never i will never have that level of patience to But you know, teach these kids. Much less is keep them under control. Like, so maybe that's it. Like those jobs that you don't think you could do seem harder than what you do do, even though your job seems harder to somebody else.
0: Yeah, but that's why it's so important to listen and know what's going on and learn kind of what they're dealing with. Right. Where if you real like, I just had a a ophthalmologist on two weeks ago, an eye surgeon that's done twenty five thousand LASIKs. 10,000 or 15 or something thousand cataracts you should listen to it what this guy does with his hands his name's dr matt mills he's going to operate on my eyes well i wanted to talk to him about vision and the importance of vision and losing your vision and as you grow into your life and you know how, how common is a cataract how do you take care of your eyes and protection and sunglasses and ultraviolet ray all this stuff and i'm like breaking it down to where my vision is everything to me not just to see a duck and be a good shot but to see Alyssa grow up and be have your vision that we take for granted every day right so I'm like while I'm sitting over here with no shoes on talking to a pilot he's over there with a laser and a scalpel cutting some dude's eyes open to make him see better exactly and I'm like what am I really doing here well I got a a chance to sit down and talk with him because he's a hunter and I've hunted with him he's also on the board of directors for the boys and girls club we met through a donation we did there and he bought the donated prize that we did through a hunt a hunt that we gave away and so it's all tied in the heart of a hunter gives to the boys and girls club this ophthalmologist serves as a boys and girls club board of directors member he's also a badass eye surgeon he comes on the hunt we hit it off i'm more interested in what he does so i want to learn more and then i'm sitting there in awe of like wow twenty five thousand surgeries and the dude's only 50 years old right how many more is he gonna do yeah barely 50. yeah and i didn't know that ophthalmologists were mds they're freaking doctors Cutting eyeballs open, badasses, which don't heal very well, badasses. But yeah. you bring up a good point. I need to get, I need to get an elementary school teacher on here. I need to get a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, and, and talk about what's going on with kids today and how much different it is. My my daughter's third grade elementary school looks like a college campus because it's so big. Or well, just how just modern the, the amenities it and modern. Yeah. You're like, what in the frick? I go look at where <laughs> I went to elementary school, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "What? this is not fair. And it still looks the same. It's still Cinder the exact blocks. same. Yeah. But a lot of good people came out of that school system and the public school system in this area that are very right. successful. Right. Very successful.
1: I know. I talk to people who are moving here. They're going to put their kids in private school, and I just don't get it. I mean, maybe I'm misinformed, but...
0: Where like Minogue? You talking like a Minogue? or is there a private elementary school here? Like a, is it like a Catholic school? Yeah, I forget. Like Saint Alberts something or something like that, yeah. Little Flower. Yeah. My mom went to Little Flower back a in the A friend day. of
1: mine went to Saint Alberts and they were told that at Clayton where I went, she's like, Oh, that's where the gangs go. I'm like
0: Oh my gosh! Well, I that went is to Clayton. So I went to Clayton. We were and in we're a gang. Fine. I wasn't in a gang. Right. Sometimes I think a gang would be. I think gangs are weird. I think groups are weird. I think when people say that I'm going to go hang out with my group, you know, whether it's a motorcycle group and you see them all with their vests on, I respect them. But I'm just like, why do you have to be in a group? Why
1: do you need to why, cluster like? Yeah, why that? do you
0: have to have to cluster like? So that need and brent cobb who was on the podcast yesterday we'll end, we'll end this pretty soon i know you're busy too but brent brent cobb was talking about people are afraid to be alone and he goes he said i think loneliness is a good thing he said i think depression is a good thing because it teaches us about what how important the good times are he goes people are afraid to to test their like you got to listen to him talk he's bright He's only went, he has a high school education. He writes songs. I don't have just every songwriter on here. This guy's songs touch me like you would you would fall in love with him guaranteed. Like Allie would loves him. Um, well, he played up at the up at the lake on Sunday night. We went up and saw him, and then he came down here and we cooked and, and hung out and, and did the podcast. And I was just listening to the way he puts words together, and I was like, man, and it's he's a poet and he's talking about lo- don't be afraid to be alone. Use it as he goes, but today. Nobody's alone because they get on this and they're like, oh, look at all my friends. I'm going to load, like all these pictures and we can't even turn this thing on long enough to be off long enough to be alone. Right. He says, he goes, I love being alone because I said, you're one of the worst texter backers of all time. And he goes, yeah, there's a reason. He goes, I, I, I want to be alone. And I'm like, I need to get to there. I have to get there. I have, I wanted to revert back to no social media where you actually had to talk and you actually went and hung. And now it's just all based on falseness of false happiness everybody's living this happy life nobody knows what sadness is he's got a line in a song that's like you don't know and you don't until you've cried you don't know about laughing and it's not worded exactly like that but this song is called shine on a rainy day off of that album right there and he's he's uh he's talking about you know not you know becoming one with your feelings and your emotions and people he get so trying to numb them yeah quit phone. trying to numb them. exactly That's exactly what he's saying He's like, we numb ourselves because we're afraid to sit in a dark room and go to bed without knowing what the world's doing and thinking that if we get likes, that it's going to change the outcome. And he's like, no he's like and and there's medications being developed right now for childhood depression and acceptance disorders and anxiety and and kids that don't think that they're living up to these other kids that are doing better than them on social media we never dealt with any of that shit we would settle our stuff at the bike rack we would have a great time out on the basketball courts playing tetherball or kickball life was simple we had great teachers that that would slap us around if not physically but would keep us in line if needed exactly and mr chapin at 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 Oh, Mr. Chapin. Mr. Chapin and Mr. Rush and Mr. Burkett and all those guys that were at Clayton, I, I'd get in trouble and I paid for it. Mm-hmm. If you got in trouble, you paid for it. You just, there was none of this, well, you you know, everything's so soft these days and everybody's a mm-hmm. participator. And anyway, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> a
1: whole other podcast.
0: <laughs> Rachel Moore, I think it's awesome what you do and what you did and what you are so sad that you don't get to do anymore after January. I I just picture this going away flight, F-16, you got your helmet, you're doing a photo shoot, Take My Breath Away is playing, or maybe the danger zone, (laughs) Kenny Loggins comes on, and I'm there with Wade, and we're all rallying behind you, and then you look at me and said, Chad, let's go. Get in get in the back we got clearance we're and you you pull out this piece of paper and you whip it real quick like fonzie <laughs> or like ice man would just <laughs> snap it boom and then and then i climb in there with my helmet i got my oxygen tank on i learn how to breathe real quick i got my asthma inhaler with me i'm not hyperventilated i'm not going to pass out That's amazing we break the sound barrier we're doing we're we're inverting we're doing flips why can't we make this is a great vision Take my breath. Let's away. make the movie.
1: That's not the only way it's going to happen. Well, I let's think. get up
0: in the air. Let's do it. This life ain't for everybody. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please check out Hi Viz. They're the partner that sponsored today's episode with the awesome, badass Miss Rachel. Moore. Can they find you anywhere? Are you on social media? Do you even live that kind of life? She doesn't give a rat. You know what? She's awesome. (laughs) And again, her husband, Brian Moore, was on a previous episode. You guys have heard that. I'm sure he's going to be on a couple more. And I will be posting a picture of the air medal that I'm holding in my hands that was given to Captain Brian L. Moore for meritorious achievement while participating in aerial flight. He saved a school in battle, in gunfight, in combat for the United States of America while he was overseas in theater. Serving our country. So thank a soldier. Don't be afraid to walk up, start a conversation. Tell them you appreciate what they do. I try to do it as much as I can. Don't just be a person that says you do it, actually do it once in a while. It makes them feel good. They like to say hello, maybe sit down and share Coca Cola. I'd like to teach the world to <laughs> be. Yeah, I can't remember the word. Oh, listen to you. You're like a.
1: See, I used to watch television. I just don't watch it now. That was
0: nice right there. Tom, go ahead and hit that button, Leith Lofton. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you guys so much. This is Chad Belding for another episode. i life be for be live living off in
1: a hole than rich is hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Hmm.